Welcome, travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. This is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides along the journey to RPG adventures. We are all D&D role players and storytellers at heart. It's where we started out, and it's where we find ourselves most at home. So here in our main podcast episodes, we discuss the core rules, how to use them as written, and how to homebrew your own content to get the most out of your story. Because detailed settings, heroic characters, vibrant NPCs, and a focus on story over rules is what makes a campaign legendary. Here's a message from friends of the show. Snide's Return is a tabletop role-playing game interviews and actual play podcast. We interview content creators, Twitch streamers, and fellow podcasters, and we put out our own actual play using a variety of different systems. So come and join us, come and have a listen. You can find us on Twitter at Return Snyder. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, or check out our website at www.snidesreturn.com. .squarespace.com Welcome everybody to today's episode. We are going to be bringing you our next edition of our subclass rankings from the D&D 5 class ethos. Uh, today, again, another fan chosen a selection we are going to dive into the cleric class and talk about all 576 something subdomains that 14, are, I, 14. there are 14 there, there are 14 14, 14 domains i know you'll I know, be okay this is uh for everybody uh listening this is definitely going to be a two-part episode both sort of by design, but also because we want to make sure that we're giving uh, enough time to all 14 domains. There is a lot to say about them, and there's a lot to say about the cleric class uh, in general, and I think that uh, um, I think that I, I will speak for everybody because we all said this uh, in, our, in our pre-show conversation. I have a lot more appreciation for cleric now than I did before doing this exercise. This exercise was really, really valuable to me, and it really gave me some. Uh, it gave me some ideas on domains that I never thought I would be interested in playing previously. It opened my eyes to some things that, for one, I found this this exercise really, really valuable um, to go ahead and, and and lay them out this way. Um, Luminico, what did you think? I know you said something similar. So how, how did you? So without duplicating the exact words that you just said, <laughs> I'm going to say, yeah, all of those things. To that, I would add, I've never played a cleric in 5e. I have played clerics in every other edition of the game, including 4th edition. I have briefly, well, I made a character in 4th edition. I didn't actually play in an ongoing game. But I have not even made a cleric without researching anything of the options. I just kind of made a cleric because I was told a group needed a healer. And I'm like, well, I know all the mechanical bits and pieces that go into making a healer. So I made a healer. 
I didn't really make a cleric. I didn't dive into what made a cleric a cleric. Yeah. And and I think that's unfortunate. I feel, I guess, I suppose that a lot of people are in that boat. That's why we think a cleric can only be that. Yep. Right. And let's not let, let, let's not be dis, disingenuous. Nearly every cleric we're going to talk about is an exceptional healer. However, that's not all they do. That doesn't necessarily mean that's their role in the party, whether it be mechanical or otherwise. That's just something they can do. And there's a difference between something you can do and your purpose, right? So I, I, that's kind of what I got. Yeah, I would, I would say even to put it on a finer point, every cleric can heal. That's true. But for every cleric, that is not always the best thing that it does, for one. There are many clerics who have stronger abilities elsewhere than in healing. I, I agree with you. I, I'm thinking back now, so I'm, I'm playing a, a Warforged cleric in an Eberron game right now. I don't know that I have ever played a cleric before. And that sounds so bizarre to say that like, no, I've, I don't know that I've ever played a cleric, but I'm honestly, I'm honestly not sure if I have played a cleric before, it was not memorable. Right. Um, and yeah. so that's why I found this exercise really valuable. I definitely get where both of you are coming from. And I think that's the delusion that most people are under is that to be a cleric is to just be the healer. But I actually have Lee Wanika to thank for breaking me of that many years ago. Because uh, I was playing in one of his campaigns, and I was one of the last guys to the table. So I got stuck with the cleric role, which made me actually do some research to try to figure out how to play a cleric and make it fun. Um, and that's when I realized that in third edition in particular, but it started out a little bit in second too. Once they started breaking the cleric out of that, I wear chainmail, I have a mace, and I heal you. Periodically, I turn the undead role and gave them some more depth and flavor. They've been a kick-ass, badass class for a while. They've got some struggles, like not previous to Tasha's having a race that is lined up to help them stack yeah. their prime attribute like every other race, that, every other class that there is. And uh, one of the other things I started to try to do to really look into how to recommend building a cleric was I, I kind of went down the race or lineage rabbit hole. Mm. And I got yeah. probably almost to the bottom of it. I mean, I've got a list in my notes that tells me in the end, that only a furball gets a plus two to wisdom. Yeah. Uh, but I listed out every race that could possibly have an increase to wisdom for its primary attribute before I realized that with the advent of custom lineages and Tasha's, Tasha's yeah. as long as your storyteller is willing, you can make a badass cleric out of any race. Any and class. That, or any lineage. Um, Sorry, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, well, specifically cleric. You can make a badass cleric out of any race and lineage combo. Right. Uh, because of that customization. And that is what Cleric has needed, I think, to finally step out of the shadows and the 5e is going to bring to it. Is yep. A lot of people didn't like Cleric also because they were screwed out of not being able to have the plus two to their primary stat. Now that you got that versatility, a lot more class race combos or are more uh, achievable. And I think that's a really good thing. But Anric Hammerfist was the cleric I wound up making in Lee's game, and I chose the domain of war just to be able to do something different. And I wasn't the party's main fighter, but I was very much a frontline cleric. Uh, and he was a tactician, and like just there were a lot of things that I chose from what was recommended in the book at the time for ways that you could bring that into it that I really started to realize that cleric is really broad. It's all about the religion, the church, and the traditions behind it. And it's got so much flavor and so much versatility. 
Um, it can already, I mean, it can be in terms of party role, just about any of them. It can be, it can almost main tank, you know, it can be a damage soak. You can make a cleric that can be a ranged caster using arcane magic. You can, you can do just about anything with them. Will they be as, as great as an arcane caster as a straight arcane caster? No, but what the domains do is they take that concept of multi-classing fighter cleric or that concept of multi-classing cleric mage and they bring it into a domain you know the arcana domain is a cleric mage effectively i can think of uh no greater praise for the way you played anric than to say than to kind of talk about it from the from the storyteller perspective you took a role that needed to be played and then you did those things quite well i might add and when they needed to be done but you also took the character in a direction that fit your what was going on. You played him in, in, in a Norse-like tradition. You did all the things. Uh, I believe, if I recall correctly, Thor was your deity of yep. choice. And uh, everything about you was in that, I'm in for the fight. And while you were a frontline fighter, as you say, uh, you're selling yourself a bit short because you outblasted the mage often and frequently. Aside from the one scene where the mage quite foolishly second edition rules through a lightning bolt, 15 foot wide, tw- uh, 40 foot long. <laughs> and killed half uh, of us. Yeah, that was awesome. Stone, stone dining room. Uh, and, and damn near took out the entire party, except for two players who were smart enough to get under the table. So they're out of the line of this ricocheting lightning bolt that he did at max, max range. With the exception of that moment, you consistently outblasted the blaster. And, and we're going to get into a lot of specifics as we go through these subclasses. And we're going to get into a lot of specifics when we do our episode on roles within the party uh, and how different roles can be filled in different ways. And Andrik was a great explanation of that long before 5th edition rules came up. We now have a lot more mechanical support for the things you did through role play, natural desire, and conversations with me in conjunction with a few support books and texts that were out at the time. Like the cleric, the uh, there were a the, bazillion books about everything back then. Yeah, I mean the cleric's handbook, I believe, is the one that was the one we were. Then like here, just use this, pick something, kind of thing. But it gave me a lot of inspiration, though. I mean, it was a good supplement. Most of those handbooks were. Yeah, you know, uh, it gave you the kits were a great way to start. This, I think, and the subclasses for clerics. Quite honestly, it may not be the finish that every player has to do. But this is right. This is the, this is the key element of that finishing sauce. Uh, I, and I think when we rank, we're going to talk about flavor and we're going to rank flavor. But understand, with very few exceptions, none, not one of these things is flavor less. Just some are more than others. On the flavor front, just keep in mind, uh, any of you out there thinking about playing a cleric, that when you're reading these domains, the domain's only half the story of your cleric's flavor. The other half is the god you choose, or the religious sect. Um, there's a whole lot more that goes into it. So some of the flavor you do need to create on your own. So definitely, or work with your storyteller or the current uh, world or mythos you're playing in. Um, because that is where a lot of it was fun. Taking my cleric of being handed a role and saying, how am I going to play make, play a cleric and make it fun? I'm going to be a Viking cleric. And, you know, coming up that, with that is what took me down that road. And pro tip for storytellers out there, when a player does something like that and they say, what is my deity like? The proper question is, what do you think he's like? Get the answer. And then you say, 
as long as it fits your world, yes, that. And you double down with everything you do on that thing. If anybody within the sound of my voice thinks I had that deity all figured out in that world, in that game, before Glenn played that role, you're flat wrong. I did not. I saw what Glenn was doing. He asked me questions. I answered with questions. And the answer to those questions informed my answers and built the world and built the deity. Well, to be fair, his deity was Thor. He didn't have to reach far. No, there's a lot of common knowledge with that one. <laughs> but, but all of the other points still stand. But Thor has been done many ways, many times. All right, <laughs> let's let's dive in here. So uh, like all of our other subclass ranking episodes, we are going to go in order of appearance. Uh, and so since we are aiming for this to be a two episode show, we're going to start, we're going to start and make it through the player's handbook, uh, in episode one here. And then, uh, episode two, we will, uh, we will pick up with, uh, with Skag and Xanathars and, and, and go on that way. Actually, we'll start with the, with the DMG, uh, for episode two, but we'll make it through the seven domains that are in the player's handbook to start. We're going to rank them in four categories. So there'll be, uh, we're going to talk about its mechanics and its flavor as a subclass. We're also going to talk about whether or not uh, we have played or want to play, kind of where that desire factor is uh, on the subclass. Um, and then we have a pool of points that we can go ahead and distribute as basically bonus points uh, for wildcard to go ahead and kind of round out their scores and everything like that. So we're going to do them in book order and we're going to start talking uh, kind of how they uh, how they compare against each other. So let's go ahead and uh, and get started then. So we're going to start again with the player's handbook. We're going to dive into the knowledge domain first. And I think that most subclasses, like, like most times when we see the first subclass for a particular class in the player's handbook, the closest thing that I can say is that, yep, this is a well-rounded standard template subclass that isn't particularly flashy. It's not crappy. It just it sort of is. It's very middle of the road for me. And knowledge definitely fit into that, although I did wind up ranking it pretty far down the scale, mostly because I, I didn't really care for its mechanics. And, and more than not caring for its mechanics, I thought that other subclasses had far superior mechanics. Let me go ahead and reframe that. Fair. It's a solid assessment. I mean, the knowledge domain, it's got potential. You know, it's got some meat. It's got some stuff to it. I mean, basically, it's the cleric version of a skill monkey or operator. It's designed to help you get extra skills, which can help fill in a role if you're missing a rogue or another skill-heavy class in your party, because it lets you choose a number of skills right off the bat, and you get expertise for double proficiency in them. And then it's got some interesting knowledge kind of flavor. I liked how it went to visions of the past for its highest level ability, you know, going beyond knowledge in terms of books and into knowledge in terms of divining. And I think it needed a little bit more of that flavor that it has right there. in it's last spread out earlier through it to make it more fun. Um, but it, it's definitely got potential, you know, the sixth level ability kind of dabbles on it where it can read kind of the surface thoughts of another creature within range. But you're right. I, I don't think that it really, it very much scratches the surface. It really does not plumb the depths of what a knowledge domain cleric could have been. So I totally love this class and make no doubt about it. This is one that I would enjoy playing greatly. Like I gave it a 10 out of 10 and would you want to play this? That said, 
I would only play this with certain storytellers in certain style of games. Like this would be a great candle keep. Oh yeah. Player. Oh no, absolutely. Oh, yeah. There's lots of ways I could make an amazing character out of this. That said, that said, it doesn't fit in every campaign. And I clearly understand that a role play heavy campaign. So when you sit down to session zero and the storyteller says, Hey, I'm looking at doing a really heavy role play kind of thing. You know, while there may be combats here or there, it's not going to be significant. It's mostly about the role play. It's mostly about the exploration, whatever that type of thing. I'm like, that's the game. I'm building this character and I will have it in my back pocket for that moment. The late level brilliance, Glenn, you spoke to it visions of the past. Arguably, in my opinion, one of the greatest capstones I've seen to date, regardless of class. This is the cool moment, the climax moment. When you rip this off and you know what the bad guy's doing, where the bad guy's doing it from, and you put all the pieces together for your party. When the whole party's in paralysis, uh, uh, analysis paralysis, can't figure out what to do. There's four different options and we don't know what to do. And the knowledge domain cleric says, Wah! and comes out with this. You've just made the moment of the campaign. And there are not a lot of capstone abilities that you can say that about. That ability sold me on this. And I have previously said, and I am on record, that I don't care for higher level abilities. I have not liked many capstones to date. This one, I would dump any opportunity to subclass or, or multi-class to make sure I got this. If I'm playing a Knowledge Domain Cleric, I am sticking all the way to the end for that ability. And you can't say that about many subclasses. That in and of itself is powerful flavor. If there's an ability that makes you want to stick it, then that's flavor. That's that's what I'm looking at. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that this is going to be something that I think we're going to find throughout these domains is that I found grading the mechanics on these really, really difficult. It was and tough. It's, it was tough. And I think that part of it is because of the number of domains that are there and how, uh, like, I will I will not share with you all the the machinations and the spreadsheets and the charts and the and the multicolored pens and the sticky notes that I used to come up with and the string oh, goodness. on the on the wall straight uh, out of straight out of it's always sunny in Philadelphia with Charlie like I see it you know um totally like that's that was me this you know, yesterday and today when I was when I was going ahead and doing these sounds like my um, spire murder board yeah you know, totally, you know, and, and so it's like, I, I found that really, really difficult. And partly because so many of them have such similar abilities right. and there are just so effing many of them. Like there are just so many domains, you know, but every um, one of them is distinct. Well, most of, of them are distinct, distinct yeah. and different. So they yeah. do all have, they do they all, have all have their the same own variation. Flavor. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, what I found was interesting is cleric more so than any of the subclasses we've done before had more capstone abilities that I liked than not. That is powerful. That's why I'm saying we're going to get on to other ones, but I definitely want to say that that's important. It's important to note that, that uh, as a class, they're all standing out. And you mentioned it, Josh, it was difficult to rank these mechanics. And I think it's important to note that, again, and I said it once before, and I'm going to refer, use this refrain a lot, we are ranking them compared to each other, not compared to good or bad. Yeah. Right. No, absolutely. <laughs> I, I wanted to add that looking through some of the features, going through them, 
expertise. It was spoken about great. The spell list for me fell down just a shade. They're decent spells. I'm just not in love with all of the all of the spells on this domain list. Um, I think I got what they were driving for. I really liked it a lot. But I found, uh, even though I previously said I use domain spell list as my primary driver for flavor, I found that this, the features actually drove specifically the 17th level feature, drove the flavor for me, which is a bit unusual to the rest of them, which is why it surprised me is how much I love this last. This subclass. I didn't go into it thinking I would love this subclass. I went into it thinking, what a great NPC subclass. I would build NPCs out of this. But then I said, this would be fun as hell to play. I would really want to play this. Again, I still need a game that would allow me my moments to shine. It could even shine in a, in a combat, a heavier game. But your storyteller would have to be really good at making sure your character has the ability to shine. So storytellers out there, if somebody comes up to you and rolls a, a knowledge domain cl uh, cleric, be sure to build in those moments to your campaign. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Because Always I, I to your player, your players. I, I am right with you about uh, NPC clerics of knowledge. Like that's like your clerics of Denier, your clerics of Ogham. Like those, I have been using those as NPCs for as long as I have known enough to make good NPCs. Like, that's really, like... And I think that that... I think that kind of goes to, to what you're saying. Maybe that's why my desire to play score is so low there, is because I'm not sure... I'm not sure that I would have fun playing that... You know what I mean? Like, that character. Right. And I think maybe that's where kind of where it's coming from. So, and to you know, be I fair, think that's a really cool observation. When we do these these rankings, something that everybody out there should probably keep in mind is that we're kind of ranking it from two perspectives. We're ranking it both from a storyteller perspective and a player perspective, and we can't really separate them because they both exist, right? So some of these I look at, and I'm exactly like exactly what they're saying. You know, knowledge, it's cool, it's solid. I don't terribly want to play it, but it'll make a great NPC, you know? Well, and I would say for me, I would love to have somebody roll one of these in one of my games because I write, I can write for this class. I can build and craft a campaign that would deal with and work with this subclass. Um, I wouldn't unless it was there. True. No, absolutely. But I would love and I would greatly enjoy writing because you have to, as a storyteller, craft something that make you can't have a 17th level reveal that's oh and the big bad guys in the castle over there that's not going to be good enough right it, you've got to 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 write something that is epic to write something that is legendary you got to have a character who is has the legendary ability to go with it right and that's what i really would look forward to on either side of the screen all right so let's move on to our second one here. And this, again, we're staying in the player's handbook. And we're going to the one that I actually ranked highest of all the subclasses in its mechanics, uh, which, again, kind of surprised me by the time it was done. We're talking about the life domain. And, you know, Liwanika and Glenn, you guys both hit on it earlier uh, in our introduction. Like, clerics have always been the healer types, right? And... You know, like its name suggests, the life domain is absolutely the heavy hitter of the healer cleric types, right? That he is or they are the absolute healer. And 
pretty much a, kind of kind of a one trick pony to the point, right? Um, except that they have got that killer right hook at level eight, and we're going to talk I think about the level eight powers. Um, that clerics get a lot because there's a lot there's a lot of fruit on that particular vine. But when you've got your your healer cleric who is you know adding two plus the spell level to any heal, I mean that's a lot of hit points. When you are able to heal your entire party at five times your caster level, when you are able to heal somebody and heal yourself too, like that's biblical reference right there, everybody, ladies and gentlemen. So you know, but not only that, but Level eight, all of a sudden, after being healer, 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 all of a sudden, now on any successful weapon attack, you've got a a cleric that can do uh, a D8 or 2D8 radiant damage. Now, radiant is one of those damage types that is not easily uh, is not easily resisted, right? And so that I think is a fabulous ability to add to this cleric and then you know and then at level 17 which again clerics with a power at level 8 and a level at 17 they get a lot of turn stuff in the middle there but that was always that's a wide gap for me but but then at level 17 when all of a sudden all of their heals are always full dice heals oh i mean mechanically this this one for me was the one that did it for me above all the rest of them and that was a tough that that's a tough decision to make you know to be honest you're right and i rated it mechanically middle in and that wasn't fair. I chose that because I kind of went middling across the life cleric because it's kind of like the trope cleric. It's playing back to that. You're just I don't want to play it, but it's great. <laughs> but it's not really if you think about it. And this is the yeah. challenge I would give somebody else out there that was thinking about playing one. Because when you look at those abilities, and Divine Strike does add a lot to it. Uh, but something we didn't talk about before is that also kind of tells you what kind of cleric you're playing is yep. that level 8 ability. Because throughout all of them, you either get potent casting or some form of a damage add to weapon attacks, right? So potent casting, which is what knowledge got, is getting your wisdom modifier as a bonus to damage for cantrips. That says, hey, this is a non-frontline, kind of back up a little bit, cleric. But if your ability, your damage bonus ability is a plus 1d8 radiant damage that goes up to a plus 2d8, at I don't remember what level, 14th, I think. That says, this is a cleric who steps forward to the front and stands on the front lines. So clerics can fill a lot of roles, and when you're looking at these abilities, they kind of tell the tale of what you can become. It also gets heavy armor proficiency, too. Exactly. They get heavy armor, too. So they don't get martial weapons. They're not a straight-up war cleric. But they're like, we will stand in the thick of battle and keep you alive. We are badass. And they're going to deal good damage, too. So they're not just a healer. But on top of that, the AoE heal for their channel, div- channel divinity is freaking awesome. All of it is is top-notch. It was just that tropishness that made me keep it, keep it lower on the mechanics scale. And it could be higher on flavor, but this one really does leave a lot of the flavor to you. Because you're either playing Healer Extraordinaire of Doom... Or you got to come up with flavor on your own through how you play the character, the things that you do with it, um, and your spell choices. Because one of the upsides of your domain spells is they also tell the tale of what kind of domain this is. And all of the domain spells for the life domain cover your healing and some of your buffs. Your main heal spells are right there in it, already always prepared, which leaves you free to not have to keep those healing spells in your spell in your mind. You can now expand through your spell list and find more flavor. You can choose that super cool spell that almost nobody ever uses because it's groovy 
but not quite groovy enough to make the list because you got to keep people alive and you can't afford it. You know, so it, it there's a lot of ways you can make it cool. And I did. I actually made one of my uh, roles in my Drinking and Dragons game a life cleric. Uh, Domain of Life, Water Genasi, cleric raised on ships. He was a pirate cleric named Salty. And Salty talked like a sailor, but she'd keep your ass alive. She was awesome. Um, and she was played fantastically by one of my players. I won't throw out his name because I don't have his permission, but shout out. Salty was amazing in that game. It was a lot of fun. In my Drinking and Dragons game, uh, the the big NPC at the center of everything that was going on, also a life domain cleric. So, but didn't know, did not know that she was, a it was... I'd come up with a wonky backstory. Did not exactly know that she was a cleric, um, but that all of her abilities came from that class. So, um, you know, for anybody that was playing at my table um, and remembers uh, Koratani, Koratani was a life domain cleric. So. so, Josh, you said something that called to mind, like, how great is it actually? But before I go into that, I did want to say I also ranked the mechanics for this subclass top among all subclasses. This was the highest mechanical uh, ranking for me uh, that we're going to get to. However, I found, and it's not unique to this class, so I did not mark it down for this, that radiant damage, that scaling damage that they got at 8th level, which many subclasses get, I found it to be at 8th level, not that great. 2d8 is only a plus, an average of plus 4 per successful attack. True, it is a little bit low for that late. Right. So in addition to that, all, for not having necessarily a prime stat being your attacking stat, because this is specifically for, oh, that says actually damage in combat. I don't recall. Please correct me. If it's weapon damage, that actually downgrades it even more. If it's any damage, then that would upgrade it greatly. No, it's weapon damage. If it's weapon damage, like most of the ones I read, plus four to weapon damage at level eight is not terribly significant. And when it scales, it gets better, yes. But by the time it scales, I think it scales less than it needs to be. I think it should start at that higher dice and then scale to the next dice above that at 14. And that would, to me, be a better and still balanced effect. So, so, so you think instead of a, a D8 at 8 and a 2D8 at 14, it should be a D8 at 8 and a D10 at 14? Something like that. Oh, I thought or, you were or, suggesting uh, 2D8 at 8. 2d8 at 8. 2d8 at 8. And 2d10. Uh, 2d8 or 2d10 later on. Okay. Increasing the die size would make sense. They've done that mechanic with a lot of other things. That would be consistent. I'd be willing to play test that and see how it worked out. I, I just don't think, one, damage in general, when you're talking about rolling dice, unless we're talking about a critical hit, is significant. I don't think it scales. And we've had this discussion with we have, yeah. some, you're right. many times. I just don't think it's all, It's it sounds better than it is. That ability isn't major for either way it goes, though, because it's exactly the same for every one of them. It happens at level 8, and it's either your wisdom bonus to cantrip damage, which even if your wisdom bonus is plus 5 max, you know, that's only plus 5 yeah. damage, and it never yep. gets bigger. Yep, um, exactly. But other than, other than cantrip scale, so that takes care of the scaling issue. But, but that's why I, I just wanted to make the point that I don't think it's quite as great as you alluded to, Josh, but but I never took off from that because it's consistent 
among all 14 classes. Yeah, correct. All of them have it, so it doesn't take anything away from any of them. Yeah, that's fair. But it does also add, even if it doesn't add a full-on combat strength, it does add yep. a flavor piece to it. Because, I mean, yeah. you're depending on which one you've got for the weapon attack in particular, the wisdom damage to cantrips is kind of blase through them all. But the weapon damage type changes as you know, based on the one. So you got radiant, you got electrical. Um, there's lots of ways that that adds flavor and coolness, but you're right. Mechanically in terms of adding level appropriate strength, it's a little weak. So just a point I wanted to make, I think it's a fabulous class. I think I agree with what has been said previously. The fact that it is the trope is why I don't have a particular need or desire to play it, though that is the kind of cleric that I built and didn't play previously. I marked it down for that, but for flavor, I marked it up. For mechanics, it was number one. I think it's so very strong that it cannot be discounted. It just cannot be discounted. Totally agree. Let's move on to the next one in the player's handbook. This is the light domain. And again, I kind of graded this one fairly middle of the road, but I also thought that its mechanics were probably its strongest, its strongest feat, right? Its strongest feature. And we've talked before about how, you know, the D&D 5e rules are written in such a way that rolling more dice is good for you and bad for the bad guys, right? Like if you're imposing disadvantage or if you're granting advantage and things like that, that that's the way to succeed under the D&D 5e rules. And so, you know, I thought that giving this domain two different ways to impose disadvantage before level six, I thought really kind of spoke to what its feature, what its kind of core features were. You know, even if you look at its capstone ability, you know, the, the ability to grant, uh, you know, grant disadvantage on foes against fire or radiant damage. So now, now we're starting to see how like groups of clerics can work together or groups of fighters can work together. If you've got your paladin doing radiant damage and you've got your light cleric who's granting disadvantage on radiant attacks, you know, that kind of thing. Now we're starting to see synergy between various alpha strike abilities. You could make a party of all clerics based on their versatility, honestly. Oh, sure. And cover just about every, every role in the party have more healing than you know what to do with. Well, you avoid that problem as far as more healing than you know what to do with by just having the life cleric do the healing and everybody else take more of their other spells options and have everybody else limit their healing spell options and just have the life cleric have that and then everybody just kind of... No, life guy may healer, but everybody's a backup healer. Oh, you yeah. just keep Cure Light in your back pocket at first level. Yeah. Well, first the, level there's, there's healing cantrips. Everybody can get everybody uh, off the ground. I I, I had a, a a little thing about the light domain cleric. I want to shout out to a player at one of my tables. The player playing Beauregard, he plays a light domain cleric, and he is freaking brilliant at it. He plays this as a blaster, and good lord, when he goes to firing, he is just that. Uh, he has done so many great things, and his his fan favorite is Scorching Ray. That's the one he uses most frequently. It's it's practically a signature ability. Um, you know, I'm almost at the point, not quite there yet, Beauregard, but that I almost want to say I give give him some ability to just do it and not have him cost a spell slot. That's his that's his thing. Um, I am absolutely not there yet, Beauregard, but I'm telling you, he that's how frequently he uses, it, and he is damn good at playing this role. 
Uh, I, I just, you know, I'm like, do you want to build a blaster, Cleric? Do this. Do you? Do you really, Punk? This is the way to build a blaster, Cleric. Here's my one thing with this, is that you're absolutely right. Early in this character's progression, this character is super sound, but it it's, it kind of falls off at the end. Like, I, I do like the level 17 ability, but this is kind of, like, it kind of front loads, right? It's like, uh, it gets the ability to add the, the, the 2d10 damage. You, you were talking about damage scaling with the life cleric a second ago. Like, here's one that, man, 2d10 additional damage at second level, and then it's kind of back to imposing disadvantage. I think that from a flavor point of view, and I'm actually surprised I didn't rank the flavor higher, but I actually think that from a flavor point of view, the way that it imposes disadvantage is really cool. But again, you know, I think that at the end of the day, it just didn't, it didn't stack well with the other subclasses. So I marked it down for mechanics because of the exact issues you, you spoke about, and then up for uh, flavor for the exact issues you spoke about. Cool. So for me, for this one, I'm going to be honest, I didn't give it a fair ranking and I didn't try to give it a fair ranking. All due respect to Beauregard, because I play in that game with him and he plays Beauregard very well. uh, And his light cleric is wicked cool. It just doesn't do it for me. Um, When I whenever I was looking at a cleric, I've never really thought about blending divine and arcane magic. That's never really been the way that my mind goes. And it's cool. And it is. And I'm looking at it and I'm trying to give it a fair shake. And I'm like, yeah, I probably shouldn't have just gave it all twos. So it landed second from the bottom because <laughs> <laughs> it does have some it does have some OK stuff. I mean, it's domain spells line up with the ranged arcana damage rule. So that does bring a lot of that to the table if your party's missing a mage. Like if you don't have somebody who's going to be able to blast for you and you still need a healer, solid choice. And I could make one and have a good time with it. I just probably wouldn't unless the role was handed to me. And it's, I mean, it gets a bonus cantrip. As it was with Beauregard, that was originally a pre-gen that he took on the yeah. role. And so, and that's when you suck it up, you take it, and you might find the greatest role of your life. You might make that role legendary. But the um, bonus cantrip of light, meh, meh for a cantrip of light, just light. Yeah, I, th- I think honestly that that's sort of cheeky. I think that that's sort of, that's just cheeky. Like, you know, I, I, because I, I mean, if you think about it, like, yeah, they gets it at first level. He gets other things at first level. You know, giving the light domain cleric light as a free cantrip. I, I almost wonder if that was a joke from the game devs. Yeah, it, it's a little bit. I mean, maybe it was just like, well, we have to. I mean, it doesn't make sense if we don't. But it doesn't add anything to it. Um, so <laughs> it's like giving the grave cleric spare the dying. Like, come on, of course, of course you do. Oh. But it didn't just give Grave Cleric Spare the Dying, but we'll get to that when we get to it. But it uses a reaction, and I think that's wicked cool. Because in, in Action Economy, reaction isn't set up enough. And I'm constantly looking for reaction abilities to give myself something else that I can do on my turn. Um, so having that reaction for disadvantage number of times equal to your Wisdom mod, that is solid. But you're right. Right after the sec- that and then the second level AoE, because that's a 30-foot AoE at 2d10, self-centered. Um, at second level, that's hot as hell, literally, because I think it's fire damage or radiant damage. But then it does kind of fall off a little bit, I agree. It could be a great class. It could be a great domain. It could be a great character. I haven't found the right role to play one in yet. I personally think that light was just not enough. I'm fine with them giving the light cantrip, but I think because you're listing it as a feature, you say... All light clerics get the light cantrip. However, for them, this cantrip works like X. And now it doubles its distance or it has some level, 
some kind of resistance to darkness so light can't be snuffed out as easily or something to that so it's better than everybody else's light. Just increasing its range and you wouldn't even have to double it, you know, just throw an extra 10 or 20 feet on it, make it brighter. No, I like to, I like doubling it. Double is nice. Because it's what, light is 60 feet? I think it's 30, 30, bright light, 30, dim light, 30. Right. So doubling that distance, so it's bright light 60 and dim light uh, 120, that's cool. I think that that adds, that would make the light cantrip in that spot perfect. Like, it is weak, it is bland sauce at best, just as is. And I would say that for any of the first level abilities that grant a simple cantrip. Even Spare the Dying needs to do something slightly better. Which it does. For Grave Cleric. Right. Any cantrip, if it's a domain feature, needs to be better for the person having the domain than any other person getting it. Otherwise, why do I even need the subclass? Why don't I just take Magic Initiated or Faithful Initiated or take the appropriate feat when I get it and get the cantrip anyway? That underscores what we were saying earlier about how Tasha's has changed more than any other class. Tasha's optional rules changed a lot about how clerics can be built. Now, I would go on to say that I found the higher level features, because they're based on and are simply improvements on fairly weak mid-range features, and I am specifically looking at Corona of Light and Improved Flare, I think they're okay, but they're not knocking my socks off. And I spoke about how many 17th level abilities were so freaking awesome that I'm like, I would stick it out for that. This is one of the ones, if I'm a player, and as Glenn said, not a disrespect to, to the player playing Beauregard at all, but if I'm playing this, I'm probably taking this, and at some point, dealer's choice as to when, I'm probably multi-classing to Paladin. See, I'm going to have to disagree with you on improved warding flare. I think that's actually a solid ability. Taking that reaction and being able to now inflict that disadvantage because I'm not going to be as a light cleric. I'm not going to be a frontline fighter. I'm going to be that back guy blasting, right? So how often are they going to take a swing at me? At sixth level, getting the ability to have two guys on the front line who you know are both in trouble, knowing you can heal one and use your reaction to impose disadvantage on the attack on another, I think that's a solid ability. I think that's actually bread and butter right there. I think it's from there that it falls off. It's just the level eight and the Corona of Light for 60 feet is okay, but it should have amped up that self-centered AoE damage to really make that a capstone ability since it's working off of that self light burst anyway agreed like we're like we we're talking earlier if if the level eight ability doesn't scale well because it doesn't do much damage having a capstone ability that does no damage also doesn't scale well all right next one in the player's handbook is the nature domain and you know this was this was one of those that surprised me i really I expected to write off the nature domain as 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 a poor man's druid, right? I went in expecting not to get excited about the powers or about anything like that. And I'll be honest, I didn't love the flavor of the nature domain. But mechanically, I think we were talking about the level, that level 8 kind of I don't know what we want to call it. It's not the capstone ability, but it's kind of like the alpha strike ability for clerics. At level eight, they get the ability to go ahead and kind of do their big boom, right? That's the best divine strike ability this one has. It's the best divine strike ability, absolutely. And it's because it gives you 
various options. It doesn't agency. say, well, not just agents. I mean, yes, agency. It allows you to go ahead and, and say, I'm this type of cleric, right? That's definitely part of it. But it's also like, oh, we're fighting undead. It's going to be fire damage. Or, oh, you know what? We're, we're fighting whatever else. You know, like it, I can change the damage type according to what it is that I'm facing. Again, we talked about that party of clerics earlier. Like the ability to go ahead and take one of these guys with a knowledge cleric to go ahead and say, hey, this is the type of damage that this is, that this is vulnerable to. And they're going to have disadvantage on that check now. So go right ahead and do your thing, nature domain cleric. Right. That's why. So I thought from a, from a mechanical point of view, it was surprisingly strong. But again, still not. It's not something that's warming my socks, you know, like it's not, uh, I gotta tell you, I started when I first hit this ranking this quite high other domains that followed. Yeah. Hit it. Caused this to fall because I, I, I went back to my old adage. Do I like this more or less than the one I'm now reading? You know, does, is it higher than the one that came before it? Yes or no. If no market one under, if yes, go up to the next one and go up to the next one and so on and so forth. That's how I ranked it. So I found that a lot of things kept changing positions. And for a while, this was near the top. But but then all of a sudden, it started dropping hard. Like it dropped precipitously at a certain point because so many things were so strong. And it has nothing to do with this not being good. It, it just doesn't. I actually chose to rank it. I totally agree with you, Liwanika. Its mechanics are solid. They're right there. But its flavor just kept getting hit because everything else was more flavorful. I, like, I, And I can sum up exactly what my, fla- what my flavor issue with the Nature Domain Cleric is, right? So again, it's that, it's that Druid variant Cleric, right? With heavy armor proficiency. Yeah, why? 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 I, I can answer that kind of. Please. Yeah. All right. I'll give you my, my take on the Nature Druid. You ready? It's crap. It's crap. I ranked it with straight ones to make sure it landed at the bottom. And I don't say that because <laughs> it has no value. All right. It's too effing specific. If I wanted to play a druid, I'd play a druid. In fact, when it comes to nature, it makes more sense for your relation to the deity to be through more the way that a druid does it. But there are two ways I can see playing a nature druid. Or I mean, a nature cleric. One because, you know, not all people who think nature's a good thing live in the woods. If I was from a city and I joined a church there, and so I learned, you know, bookman's version of nature as opposed to being raised by wolves. But the other one is when you accept the fact that clerics are also warriors. That heavy armor says this is a warrior, right? So now it's not just a cleric. It's a green knight. Because knights don't just have to be fighters. He's that nature warrior guy who's got, you know, maybe he's a fey knight. And, you know, he's got some some powers coming to him from the nature side. Those are the only two ways I could see myself playing one, though, which is why I just ranked it at the bottom. Because there wasn't really much point after that. So I love what you did there because you've inspired me. I now have a perspective. And that, that, was, that was what was holding me back, right? I can think of different ways to do things, but we've talked a lot about what we're going to do with the Fae and we've got future projects in mind that have to deal with that. And I now have a take and a nature domain cleric because I do like the mechanics so much and was missing some ways to make it shine. That has inspired me. I thought in many ways, this was kind of all over the place. There are some things that make great sense and there are some things that I was perplexed by. And I think you're right. If you're going to do a night, it's there. I just, I would have preferred two 
skills to the heavy armor. Put them in medium, grant them medium, or clerics already get medium, and give them two skills to choose from. That that's just me. I like skill monkeys, so that that it, that is my personal preference. And there's a lot of nature skills that could be between survival, animal handling. I could see that. Right. So I mean, that's three. That's three skills. Clerics don't get a lot of them. None of those three are on their regular list. So if you're going to try to be a nature cleric that has all three of these, you're now putting a lot of heavy lifting and limiting your backgrounds significantly to get all three of these skills. Or you're requiring some kind of multi-class to get the other skill. And that's kind of, and, and, and so, and, and there's agency and choices involved with that. So I get it, but I would think there should be a way to build this character where you could get all three. And that would be challenging the gate. The other NPC that I saw was actually an evil nature domain cleric with all of its creature control abilities. Um, I, I thought of something akin to, not on the same level of, but akin to the, to the swarm keeper, um, you know, that the, the, um, you know, the, the bad guy that is running through the woods and you're chasing after him. And then all of a sudden a wolf is there in front of you and you got to contend with the wolf while the guy gets away or, you know, whatever like that, you know, not so much as like a familiar for a wizard or anything like that, but more just like some, somebody who can kind of, uh, who can bend nature to their will. Um, Perhaps from a hex blood. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Oh, oh, gross. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> right a, a yeah. swamp ridden hex blood nature domain uh, pulling up like crocodiles and oozes and oh yeah i can see that yeah, yeah. from the npc so, like, perspective and, and and that's the downside when it's this specific is as a swarm keeper even we talked about that with ranger that channel divinity ability of charm plants and animals i mean yeah okay at second level that's hot as hell if you're playing in the woods but that's the only situation you can write it as an npc and you can make sure that they have creatures around them then you can create that thematic villain. But for, for a PC, it's just too specific. Right. But if I'm playing a PC, let's say we're playing a city campaign, I'm asking questions like, so we're in this building. Is Are there any plants here? I'm walking in, like we sneak into, we're in there at night. I'm going to talk to the plants that are in the Arboretum. Who's passed through these walls? Tell me the secrets that have been told here. I'm, as a player, looking for where plants are. Because believe it or not, everybody in medieval cities subsistence farmed there's a garden somewhere there's a place on somebody's property if they're if they're wealthier it, you know there's going to be something there where uh somebody's got something growing uh it was much more prevalent than it is now but even in the modern era if i were playing 5e rules and all these classes as written in a modern era guess what most people have some kind of house plan a lot of people have a garden. I spent most of my afternoon working on my garden. I went out and bought plants and was working on the garden that's sitting on my back deck because I like doing it. I like that tangibility of the earth. I got it. You know, we talk about the DM perspective, the storyteller perspective, but let's also throw this bone to our players. As we said, none of these are bad, but some of them require a little extra heavy lifting or a little extra effort to kind of see that piece. So Glenn gave a couple really nice pieces of inspiration that I think work really a fey touch nature domain cleric who focuses on combat skills. Take the, uh, take one of the, uh, martial, uh, like the fighter initiate, the, yeah. the fighter initiate, or the martial adept or whatever. Yeah. Now you get your, your, now you get your, uh, fighting style and a weapon. Now we're talking. 
Like, there's a way to build this, and it would be very cool and a positive, a strong player character. That is different than a ranking. A ranking is ranking exactly what we see compared to exactly what we saw and exactly what we will see. Compared to the other so stuff, th- this one's just right, weak sauce. Just, this one's drops, despite the fact that we all love it. And I gave it better marks for Wanna Play because I love Faye, and I am definitely thinking Faye Knight. Dude, I can see amazing concepts for it, but it would have to be for the right campaign. I wouldn't want to play it in just any campaign. So when I'm looking at Wanna Play, I got to go with just the overall inspiration. And it, I could find it, but it doesn't jump out at me. Take your Fey Nature Cleric and propose a uh, Shadowfell like Death Cleric as its nemesis, or even as its Seely Unseely side. You know, like uh, all about it. All right. So the next one that we're going to talk about is like this is going to sound very very strange when you actually see how our rankings wound up at the end because this was collectively across the board our number one rank subclass i ranked it uh it's like certainly within the top three it's in the top three for all of us and it wound up being the number one ranked and yet even still with that i think that this is a subclass that had so much promise and fell a little flat uh we're talking about the tempest cleric so i ranked this number one from want to play number one from flavor we just did our mortal Kombat episode not that long ago like did we say that Raiden was a Tempest cleric? Because if we didn't, we aired. <laughs> I, I believe we did not. I think we we may we we may have for the first time in six months totally failed. Because wow, I like truly love this class. I love this class. Yeah, I am going to throw myself on the sword a little bit and say perhaps. I was a little harsh on this subclass because I ranked it second from the bottom for its mechanics. And I ranked it second from the bottom from its mechanics for one reason. I will admit that I think I have been unfair. Why the f*** does it have fly as its 17th level ability? Like that's, that's flat out awful. That's just, it's just awful. That's why I reduced its, that's the only reason I reduced its mechanical ranking. Yeah, absolutely. Killed its mechanics. So we're ranking one through 14. I rank this for mechanics at a nine. That is high, but it is not top tier high. And you're correct. That's why that's one of the things I brought down. I mean, mobility is great. You give them fly at 14, like damn near every other thing in every other class. There's another subclass that gets fly at six. Yeah. I mean, whatever. SMR gets fly part time at third. Yeah. You know, heck. If it was fly with extra speed or fly with, and you get a thunderous boom that everybody has to make a deck save when you take <laughs> off. Oh, and awesome. when you land, yeah, that would work for me. Like Superman and Man of Steel. If you did that whenever you flew, now we're talking. Now I love your 17th level ability. Dude, or like an epic leap that comes down and like uh, bringing down Mohan's your position on the ground that throws out a self-centered AOE of lightning or something. That would be badass Just too. Just give them a hammer that nobody else can lift, and there we go. Yeah, you know, these are the things that are like, there was a way to make this better than just, well, you get fly with no concentrate. You get a fly speed. I didn't knock it down terribly for it. I I ranked this one 12 mechanically, because that's the only thing I didn't like about it. And I'm like, we want to talk about the capstone ability, but by and large, you you, you have to not multi-class and play long enough to get there, so... How often, how, how, how often are you going to get there? Yeah, uh, I can admit it. I was harsh. I get it. Yep. I, you're so absolutely guilty. I want to talk about the spell list and the domain spell list, which were decent. 
But here's what this class lacks. It has fantastic abilities to add damage to certain types of spells. The problem is 5e doesn't have damn near enough spells of that type. There are not enough of them. As cool as the ability is, you are pigeonholing yourself into effectively becoming a one-trick pony. Your ability to do things, unless you have a storyteller who has homebrewed something akin to at a spell level, any energy type you can change to the energy type of your choosing. There are storytellers, myself included, who will often offer that to players. Make it more difficult and you can change it to your will, right? Uh, but only to one thing and you have to decide one time what that one thing is. So you're going to play Tempest Claire. You can do that to make it one for thunder and maybe two for lightning or one for lightning and two for thunder. Take, I, I would, I would, I would allow any player at my table to do that. And I think that's a fair trade off. But I also have to say that there's just not a lot of thunder and lightning spells, not enough of them. Yep, there are, that's fair. there are a few, but not enough to be as powerful as this seems in writing. You know, yep. and I missed I did that. like the addition of Sleet Storm and Ice Storm, though. I thought I think that Sleet Storm and Ice Storm are really fun additions, uh, as yep. is Insect Plane. And that makes sense, <laughs> yeah. That's really just neat. Tempest doesn't have to be just electric. It shouldn't just be about lightning. You are correct. I, I just don't think there's quite enough to... Look, there's a butt-ton of fire spells in the game. There are a butt-ton of radiant spells in the game. There are not a lot of these. And I would implore Wizards of the Coast to, as they do new books and they add new spell lists, to add more spells of that type. Because if you do that, that will only serve to improve. There are more now than when this was written. And I have listened to or watched on YouTube ranking videos from a couple years ago when there was less spells than there are now. And people harped on this issue a lot more then. And there are at least one or two more now. And with the different options that you can do, thanks to Tasha's, there are things that you can mitigate some of this uh, difficulty with. Taking an initiate feat so you can get a wizard initiate and grab a, some more lightning stuff, like you could throw on lightning lure and something else. These are things that would make sense. But in and of itself, that's why I marked it down to nine. That said, nine is not bad. Because this class rocks. And speaking of rocks, let's get into it. Digging, Glenn, tell me how, how well this rocks. Tell me how I'm wrong. Uh, it's not specifically about how you're wrong. It's more of a caveat on top of it and a little bit of a disagreement. So the thing about Tempest is it is supposed to be the storm and everybody just automatically goes to lightning. But it's not always lightning. You know, a Tempest represents wind, lightning, thunder. And all of that is here. Right. And I agree that the that the not cold lightning damage. Ice storm is. Ice Storm too. That's hot. Bringing in the cold damage for the the cold spells. Sleet Storm and Ice Storm. Yeah, I think but the nice damage issues. type isn't added in on the level eight. No, no, that's true. But it, I mean, it also gives them gust of wind. I'm just saying that the the domain spells they focus on utility and AOE with a little bit of crowd control, but they're they're solid for for what it's for what this is trying to line up to be right. And then you get your heavy armor. And you get your martial weapons. Like if I remade Anric, he would be a Tempest priest. Oh, hands down, hands down. Oh yeah, and his the the ability to the ability to push allies too. So it's like if one of them happens to escape your Sleet Storm, right? Nope, you just go up there. You can and you can you can push them ten feet as their uh, I think it's their sixth level ability, right? Yeah, push ten feet back with lightning damage to a larger, yeah. smaller creature. So yeah, 
Oh, and for storytellers out there in terms of imploring people and for the elemental damage types, don't be afraid to let your characters reflavor a traditional spell with a different damage type either, like Sprocket does in our actual play, where he took Firebolt and I asked if I could instead cast it as electric damage. Simple change, no other endgame mechanic whatsoever. It wasn't because of any endgame knowledge about fighting electrical things, it was just everybody cast Firebolt. Well, as an example, if you set it up with your storyteller and you created a Tempest who took Arcane Initiate and got Firebolt but used it as electric, you now have a cantrip that you could get all of these lightning abilities off of too. But Or Witchbolt. Witchbolt would be Witchbolt, yeah. And that's lightning damage. It, but it doesn't have to be in the spells because they built it right into the class. And I think that's the piece you were missing when you brought it back down there, Lee. I think you were missing Wrath of the Storm is what brings all of those other lightning and thunder abilities back into play for him. Because having a reaction, again, one of the least used parts of the action economy, if you hit me, I can, as a reaction, make you make a deck save for half versus 2d8 lightning damage. A number of times equal to my wisdom mod, right? So I don't have to make an attack to deal that damage and push you back 10 feet once I'm level 6. I don't disagree with you that Wizards of the Coast needs to expand the spell list in terms of the way they're using elemental damage. But they built it into the class and it works well within his own abilities. Wait a minute. Do all of these abilities stack? So I hit you. Wrath of the Storm allows me to go ahead and and after I hit you, make you take lightning and thunder damage. Now that you've taken lightning and thunder damage, Channel Divinity says that that lightning and thunder damage is max and that's at second level. And so it's at it's at max dice. So instead that's of a bonus action, an, instead of an average of nine or ten, right now you're taking sixteen if you fail your save, right? So that's that's a big step. Seven additional hit points between first and second level. That's a big stack, right? Is you're right that that's a, that's a bonus ability, right? And now also you'd have to have not used your bonus action on your turn yet. Okay, that's fine. Like I I looked at this. Clerics don't get that many bonus action things, which is fine. So. But, right and thunderstrike which does not have an action requirement every time it's, it's just automatic when i deal lightning damage i can also push them 10 feet away so at sixth level i can hit you make you take 16 points of lightning damage and push you 10 feet away because i've got those three abilities and yes. then and then when you look at divine strike so now at eighth level not only am i doing I'm doing 16 points of lightning damage because of my first level. I'm now doing another eight points of damage because of my eighth level ability. So it's my hit plus 24 plus a 10 foot move. Except Divine Strike is specifically a strike. You would be able to use that on your reaction. Well, it has to be a weapon. As long as you did it right. with a weapon, Divine right. Strike works. So, well, so here's the question though: Does the weapon have to be the lightning damage, or is it? Are all those? Are those? Exc- I think that's going to be between the storyteller and the player. No, no, no. The rules, uh, the rules as written, are very specific on this score. An item in hand is a weapon. Period. A spell is not a weapon unless you're talking about like booming blade which basically adds on to a weapon attack. Oh, okay, that's right. It's the other way around. Sorry, Wrath of the Storm is a defensive thing. A wand, unless you're physically whacking somebody with it, it is not a weapon. Yeah, that's right. Wrath of the Storm is a defensive thing. If I get hit, you take lightning damage. But you can still add that lightning damage and push any creature you hit back 10 feet with that ability. Like, all of its abilities nest. Yeah, all that it says is when you deal, not when you attack. Except for Lamo flying at 17. Everything else nests really well. However, Josh, if you are playing in Faron, for example, where weapons can be purchased and things are found at every magic shop on every corner, like a 7-Eleven slushy machine, which actually appears in some high schools, you can turn <laughs> around and just buy a lightning blade or a lightning mace. And now your weapon attack does do that. 
and does all the other things. Well, right, right. Okay, yeah, so before 8th level, you're right. So if you're before 8th level, then... Because at 8th level, your attacks now do lightning damage, and so they get the max dice, and they get the and they get the push. But before that, you can just buy buy a plus one but, lightning blade and, yep. you know, a dagger of lightning strike. and a, a dagger of lightning strike would actually do all the things you need. And, and Oh, wait, there's no range requirement. You could go ahead and get, like, a bow that does lightning damage? Yeah, it's just a weapon. It doesn't have to be... Just a weapon. Yep. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't have yeah. to be melee attack. Yep. It's just uh, a weapon. Yep. Looking at you, arcane archer, and, right. and mixing with yeah. this. Bad yeah, like, ass. Uh, like all of a sudden you're so all of a sudden from 120 feet away an arrow flies out of the air hits you in the chest and you fall back 10 feet taking lightning damage. <laughs> all right, turn around, go home. Yeah, yeah. turn, turn around. Yeah, yeah. So, and I'm done, boss. <laughs> but I could have a good time making this one. I had it up pretty yeah. high too. Yeah, um, I would probably. Oh yeah, go... so it's the number one rank subclass for all of us. So that's collectively anyway, not yes, for all correct. of us individually. It's, it's probably. Second, I think for me, possibly third. I think it's third for me. I think me, it's but. it's it's second for you. It was third uh, for me, se- and it was third for me also. Cool. Um, oh, if I did this one though, I'd want to do it for a nautical campaign. I did say Anric, but I mean Anric was Norse. I'd want to stay near none of my Norse homelands. Get on a ship and play this guy as a corsair battle priest, as an air genasi or a half sea elf. You know, and you got gust of wind to improve your maneuverability. and. Uh, so I'm thinking an Earth Genasi in the desert a la Dark Sun with this, stirring up sandstorms and all that. And I really think this is where they kind of missed the ball on the eighth. They needed to put in, it's got to be a choice. I think it, I don't think you need to pick like they have in other abilities. I think it needs to be flavored to a choice you make, right? You're going to be the lightning guy, the thunder guy, the ice storm guy, or the whatever guy. Like, you still have all the other spells. Everything else can be the same. But for this ability, I think you choose. And this becomes a signature ability. And 8th level is a perfect level for a signature ability. You're playing for a little while. You're lo- Yeah, Divine Strike should be could be a choice. You're you right. You know, if you have that choice and, and let it do sand damage and have it be piercing, the piercing sands or whatever... You or can, let it have the choice of any, just like nature does. Let them have all three. Let them pick which one they want to use. Lightning, thunder, cold. Yeah. I think there's a way to do that. I just think we need to find a way to get some kind of sandstorm thing, which is a spell that doesn't exist, or a damage set that doesn't exist. I don't know how to do that, but magical piercing would be fine for me and call it sandstorm. I would definitely homebrew that. Uh, somebody, please, at my table, pitch <laughs> that idea so we can have some fun. Somebody who's storytelling for me in the future... I'm pitching this idea. Let me know so we can have some fun. So we hoped to go ahead and get through all of the player handbook uh, subclasses before uh, rolling off here at the end of episode one. Um, but I think that this is a good place to stop because we have talked a lot about the subclasses so far and the cleric class in general. So we are going to call episode one here after talking about knowledge, life, light, nature, and tempest. And we're going to pick up with episode two next week when we start talking about the trickery domain. Uh, so hope you guys have enjoyed so far. We'll talk to you next week.
Welcome back, everybody. We are now diving into part two of our cleric subclass review. Uh, I strongly encourage that if you have not yet listened to episode one, do that, because uh, there is probably about 20 or 25 minutes of introduction into that episode about sort of how we did this and some of the challenges that we had and and uh, some really key information, I think, that's going to help make these rankings make more sense. Uh, so please make sure that you have listened to uh, to part one before diving in here because we still have nine subclasses to go, so we're not going to go through all of that again. Uh, not that I think that any of us could even remember what it was we said a week ago. We're just going to go ahead and dive in, continue going on with, with the same methodology, and we're going to start again with the next subclass that's in the player's handbook. This is the trickery domain. You know, I'm going to say something similar about this subclass that I did about the Tempest subclass, and that's that, man, I really wanted this to be better. <laughs> you know, how many times have we said that about various subclasses that, like, man, it just seems like it would just be so, it could be so great. You know, you rock, rock, you could have been a contender. You know, it really, you know, it just, but it's just, mechanically, it's not good the flavor falls short through the mechanics. I gra I graded it really high on on its wild card scale because I wanted it to be so much better than it actually was. But at the end of the day, collectively, we ranked it second from the bottom when all of our scores were, were tallied up here. So, so I looked at the trickery domain, and I honestly think I have revealed something. Having done several classes at this point, I've I've realized something about myself. I don't like trickery. Which is odd because I'm big on strategy. I'm big on finding ways in and out. And I love the RP feel of things. But I have consistently found that any mechanics surrounding trickery fall short for me as a player. Because I think, quite honestly, I naturally do them better. And so tying myself to mechanics that don't consistently work or that don't work consistently isn't helpful to me. Trickery in general, I can RP and get my way into it better than relying on mechanics that cut me off of other mechanics that could be helpful in other elements of the game. Right. Why play a trickster cleric when you can play another class that gives you better mechanics and RP the trickster element? Element, yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, I can pick the few spells that it's going to grant that are slightly different. I can take initiate or I can just select those spells. Will I have the features? No, absolutely not. But I'll have other features and I will just put my number two stat into charisma and rely on persuasion, deception, and I already have great insight. So I know what's going to work on a consistent basis. So I'll just skill my way through making the spells work. And that's why this falls flat for mechanics for me. It's not so much that all of them are bad. It's just that none of them are better than anything else that I would want to pick. I rank it bottom for mechanics. And for flavor, again, if the mechanics aren't helping you get there, how much flavor can it truly have? I'm going to actually take that a step further and say that I actually think its mechanics are pretty bad at the end of the day. Like, it has this kind of neat version of mirror image that it gets at second level. And 
there is no scaling whatsoever on that. Like you get one at second level and you keep one at second level until all of a sudden when you get to seventh level, you get four of them, which that's pretty powerful at 17th level. But I just, I would have liked to see some, some progression there. Like, you know, you get one at second level, you get two at eighth level, you get three at 14th level. And, you know, it's just something that kind of gives it some, some sense of shape or progression or, or something. I would agree. I hadn't actually thought about that in terms of a way to scale it through earlier. Like with that channel divinity ability, they could have done at two, you get one image at six, you get two as a, as a scale up or tie it to your proficiency bonus because the improved duplicity at the end is kind of groovy. But I mean, all in all, I think the biggest problem with the trickery cleric is everybody wants to like the idea of the trickery cleric you know we want it to be a lot why because we love loki but let's be honest there's a reason that loki doesn't usually land in the hero group because even if you do just nothing but innocent pranks if you are somebody who constantly is a trickster you're going to know your party you're going to annoy the townsfolk this is a domain that i think makes an awesome amazing npc that you could use to drive plot with i mean what thieves guild couldn't use a cleric of trickery on hand right before a major heist who can, by touch, give anybody advantage on dexterity stealth checks for an hour. If I was going to play it as a player, I'd want to be playing it in a stealth group. I'd want to be playing it. This is the cleric I'd play if somebody pitched me a group like my family group does in my game because they're all stealth characters. All of them. If I let them sneak out at night, everybody dies. This is the cleric I'd play in that group. Who is, who is a trickery cleric? The Irishman in Braveheart is a trickery cleric. Josh, you have finally done it. Just like Glenn gave me a, a template for the nature domain, you have given me the template for the trickery domain. I could now mark this slightly higher for want to play because the Irish character was my favorite character in Braveheart. And I think he didn't go over that line of annoying everybody. And he didn't go over the line of just getting in trouble. But even in the context of that story... Other than him holding his own in a fight. Oh, yeah. He was still badass, yeah. But aside from that, he didn't do much to drive the story. He was comic relief. That's a theatrical device that exists. Right. And so while that is necessary and that is great, at a game table, it's slightly different. There is no main player character and secondary characters. Everybody has to be a bit of a main character. So what makes it hard is in order for somebody like that to be a main character, that means his abilities have to rise up to a higher level and in that rising, not become annoying. And that's where you lose friends and do not influence people. Right, and that's where I think the problem with the trickery cleric comes in. So if I'm playing the role and I'm okay with effectively being that C-list character, and I don't mean that pejoratively, but if I'm okay with, I'm going to be the comic relief. I'll hold my own in all the different aspects of the game, but I am specifically not designed to have a moment to shine. If I'm okay with that, I could do that. But generally, I'm not playing this game to not shine. And that's why this falls to one for want to play. Some players can feel like they shine through helping other people shine. And support characters and people who play them are an amazing thing, so we don't want to downgrade that. But it is hard to be the guy who plays second fiddle. But let's be honest, not everybody can be Buffy. I've said that before. There's nothing wrong with being Xander. He does great things in the show. If you set up a pirate crew, somebody's going to have to be captain. It's probably going to be the person with the most charisma. It's not specifically a reward. It's just a role that has to be filled. Um, but for the trickery... I mean, just a little bit of uh, 
foreshadowing slash vague spoiler alert for my players, the trickery domain, NPC-wise, I wasn't kidding, though, when I keep saying NPC, NPC, has inspired me. He, nobody's met him yet. I haven't named him. But I'm working on a trickery domain NPC whose whole job is following the orders of whatever deity he serves and moving through the world as a force of chaos, nudging events as he's told, so to speak. You know, uh, maybe a Kenku or a Hexblood. Um, and I think he could be a lot of fun. And he's kind of an antithesis to another NPC that I've developed that I'll talk about a little bit later. Okay, next in the Player's Handbook, well, actually, the next two, one in the Player's Handbook and one in the Dungeon Master's Guide, pretty universally, the three of us ranked pretty high across the board. And so we're going to start with the War Domain, which when you think about the quintessential warrior priest, like this, this is the domain that you that you think about. You think about war. We've talked about some other variations that could factor into this, but war is really where it is. I mean, it's built like a fighter. You get extra bonus attacks, you do extra damage, you get bonuses to your to hit, you get damage resistances, you do you do just even additional weapon damage. Like even their 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 level eight kind of signature ability, they don't even do like special damage. It's just nope, if I hit you with a hammer and I'm doing bludgeoning damage, now I do more dumb I, I do more bludgeoning damage. It That's just yeah, it just, it just hurts more. Yeah, but like so, like the ability to not only get your get a plus to hit for you, but also to grant that to to an ally. That's really powerful. And so I I graded it slightly over halfway on its mechanics, but I think its flavor is is fantastic. You know, honestly, the biggest hit that it took was its wild card points because it didn't need any wild card points because it was already badass and kind of exactly where I wanted it to be, right near the top of the pile. This is your, I mean. The, the Warforged cleric that I'm playing is a war cleric. You know, there's a whole bunch of backstory on why he's there and everything like that, but the, he is a war cleric. That's his job, is to hurt other people in the name of his chosen deity. So, for me, I, uh, very similar to you, uh, rank the mechanic high for all the same reasons. Rank the flavor high for all the same reasons. I reverse that a little bit. I have the mechanics higher than the flavor, and I guess it's part of since cleric as a class is supposed to be fighter-y anyway, or capable anyway, while it did all those things very nicely, it didn't rise it above the the three others that I ranked higher than it for flavor, right? And while it was strong and it was in the top echelon, it didn't get better than the top three, as strong as it was, because honestly, clerics are already there, or part of what, like, cleric did a lot of the heavy lifting here, this pushed it a little further. And while the push was strong, it wasn't enough to get better in flavor for me. As far as wildcard, very similarly. I, it, there's nothing about it that wowed me. It was everything I anticipated it to be. It was everything I expected. There were no surprises here. It was just very strong. If anything, it was slightly stronger than I anticipated. But oddly, from just talking to the community, seeing how many I've seen played at Adventure League tables, I knew this was extremely powerful. I knew this was mechanically sound on the table and in the combat pillar of the game. So again, there just weren't surprises, which is why for me it was kind of midland for wildcard. As far as want to play, it's the higher end of, you know, five out of 10 is, is average. I marked it a seven that's better than average, but it, but it's not fantastic. And the reason is because as great as this class is, so don't get me wrong, this subclass is fantastic. My desire to play it is not as fantastic because like I said, everybody's already seen it, done it. Until I have something specific that I want to do and or a specific campaign where this needs to be held. Like, for instance, here's the game. We're playing a party of clerics. 
and nobody has chosen this. I'm the last guy at the table. I would probably choose this because somebody needs the fight to be the fighteriest one. And for that reason, I would do so. And none of that is to take away from it. There's nothing to take away from this. So I think war, I think war is great. Um, and y'all have pretty much said most of it, so I'm not going to try to rehash. I'm just going to kind of gloss over, sum up, and throw in a couple of things because um, I ranked it high in both mechanics and flavor because I think its abilities do nest really nicely um, between the way that its domain spells focus on buffs, either self or the party, and some damage just to give you that little bit of extra. But you get the martial weapons and the heavy armor. You're clearly the frontline battle priest of Doom, right? But it also gives you that second bonus attack from first level. Like that's a third that's up to three potential attacks at first level as the frontline fighter, right? War of Priest isn't what I would choose if I was gonna have to play a cleric and because you're playing a part of party of clerics. War Priest, based on the way that 5e has redone it, is what I would choose if I was given the tank role and I didn't want to just play a straight up toe-to-toe fighter, if I didn't want to just be a fighter. This could be the flavor that I put on my tank, because this build could tank. It could be your main damage d- dealer and soaker on the front line, um, but it doesn't have to be the main dealer. If you've got, if it can take the hits, you know, if you've got somebody mobile to help you deal the damage, that still works. You know, when I said earlier that clerics could fill every role, they really can. This could straight up be the tank of a party. It's it's a warrior first. Yeah, this is another character that you give the magic weapon to and pair it with something else, right? Pair it with with the light cleric that's going to give the enemies disadvantage or something like that, you know, but give it like a, give it a flame sword and and have it do fire damage and then have other people kind of target the allies that, or the, the people that you're fighting to go ahead and give them disadvantage against fire and things like that. Cleric among anything else, and this is the one thing that I think I've learned in this exercise, is it is a synergistic character type. It works really well with what you put around it, and it works better when it's when, like a chess piece. It works best when it's put with complementary pieces. A bishop is exceptionally powerful when it's used as the anchor point for a stratagem. If you've got the bishop, if you've got one pawn, and you've got a, a knight and a rook, now you've got a, a force that to be reckoned with. Moving on, we're going to go to kind of, I think, again, a kind of complementary subclass. And this is the death subclass from the Dungeon Master's Guide. I think my, one of the first subclasses that we see exclusively kind of from the Dungeon Master's Guide, that wasn't very common. Most of them were in the Player's Handbook. This one only in the DM's Guide. When I'm looking at, you know, you talk about the flavor. We, we, we joked about this earlier about, uh, about the light cleric getting the light cantrip, you know, what does death get? Death gets a, nec- a necromancy cantrip. It gets, and but it also gets some nifty abilities. The ability to target two creatures with a with the necromantic cantrips instead of just one, uh, doing additional damage on successful melee attacks, and specifically necromantic damage. So it's it's flavor is. I mean, it is all about necromancy right and i think that that's really kind of you know i mean this we're going to talk about this one a little bit later and kind of compare and contrast the death cleric and the grave cleric i i certainly had a preference between those two glenn you clearly had a preference between the two author also that's because they're totally different totally different 
It's even suggested in one of the other writings that they're similar, but they're totally different if you look at them. We'll get to that when we get to the we'll get to the grave cleric. But you know, again, I thought from a flavor point of view, death cleric strong. It kind of beat you over the head with that necromantic stuff. So interestingly enough, I thought it was surprising that this was even brought into the DMG at all in the early phases of Five E, because they were making a very strong decision to not give people mechanical support for building evil characters. And that's why it's in the DMG. I think they were not sold on the idea of all bad guys will be stat blocks versus we can have some character classes that are for bad guys. So this was put in there as, look, people are going to ask for this, so here's an example of it. If you had to do it, here's what it is. But also because, or to help you build a big bad guy. Like, this makes a great campaign ender. So I think that was kind of why it was done the way it was done. And I think later they settled on just make bad guys stat blocks so DMs don't have to do all the, this hard work. It kind of stepped away from that. Why I think Grave Cleric is very different was Grave Cleric was designed, let's make a hero subclass that deals in necromancy or the death domain or something to that. Something to that. At least that was my take on But I love this from the simple perspective of this is how I'm going to build a bad guy. I don't think this works well as a player character. I don't want to play one as a player character but I want to build the heck out of me out of an NPC for this. See, I, I, I totally disagree on that. I very much want to play one because of the strength of its abilities. I, I think that it's a, look, it's not a good guy. You're absolutely right. And maybe this is my inner storyteller saying, I want to play this as an NPC. And maybe that's where that's coming from. But I actually, I, I really had pretty keen desire to play it. I want to roll one. And because I role play my NPCs heavily, I would not stat block that type of character. I would fully design and build up a character at a level and have the full sheet at my disposal. I would do that. His minions may be stat blocks, but I would have the full sheet at my disposal in this case. So I would still get to play that. The only thing I think this type of character is working with are the dead that it creates. Yeah, you you are a basically good person, Lee, and you struggle with evil. The death domain definitely delves directly into it. it. It's not ashamed about it. That is why they put it in the Dungeon Master's Guide. And that's because, as a whole, D&D doesn't want to see, be seen as a, a game that's fomenting evil parties that are running around murder-hoboing towns. We've talked about this before. But now you're not just murder-hoboing them. You're murder-hoboing them, raising the dead and using them to assault the next town, right? Um, and that, that can be a problem. And I have two minds here, all right? As a storyteller and most of the games that I run and the style of game that I run, this is not an appropriate domain for a PC. But I do play in games, and I can play in a game where I could see myself making a necromancer-type character because I could play one, but usually if I play in a campaign that's going to have that kind of a seriously gray to evil bent, I'm on the upper side of evil. I'm not like the abomination evil guy, you know? I might not raise the dead just to have a bunch of random wandering corpses. There'd be a purpose. There'd be a reason. There'd be, you know. So, and I don't disagree with you, but here's my take on this. I get to play very infrequently. Actually, a lot more frequently now that we run an AP. uh, And and I'm in a couple other games. Uh, Thank you to... uh, I was playing uh, too many games right now. Yeah. Streams of Spiro and... uh, the guys at Basement Quest. But even at the amount of games I'm playing, I'm roughly playing once a month or every other week. Actually, most of the games I play in are once a month. That means if I'm going to play in a campaign, I'm going to play one adventure a month. That means 12 sessions in a year. Guaranteed, we're skipping at least one of those months in a year. That means I'm getting 11 sessions in a year. 
even if we were playing one session a level, that's a long time to be tipping my toe in that evil in that evil pond. I can tell you, if I was doing a one shot, I would play the hell out of it. But an ongoing campaign, I would like at a certain point, I would struggle and not want to play. And I think that's for me why the want to play, which actually sits above the halfway mark, because I want to play it as a DM and I want to have the bad guy be this thing. And my willingness to play it in a one shot is right high. If somebody says, hey, you're going to convention, you're going to be a player. You're going to play a team of evil people doing evil things. I'm like, yeah, I could do that. I could do that. One shot? Absolutely. And I could have a lot of fun doing it. Ongoing campaign? Probably not so much. But let's dig in. Tell me about what you thought about the mechanics specifically, Glenn. Like, was it just a matter of fitting really well with the theme? How, how did you think about it? Mechanically, it's solid. It, it fits well with its, stuff, with its abilities. You know, it gives you martial weapons, but not armor. So you've got a light warrior. Your hand, you can handle yourself in hand-to-hand combat. All of its domain spells are centered around necromancy, just like you'd think they would be. You know, the ability to split targets and have two, that's hot, like Josh said before. I mean, all of its abilities stack well. It is a well-made mechanical class. Flavor-wise, uh, so I gave it a nine in mechanics. I mean, it's not perfect, but flavor-wise, I gave it more in the middle range because, I mean, it's a necromancer. It's old hat. I love them as villains and NPCs, which is why I put a middle of the road kind of just in general for everything else, because as a storyteller, I love them. As a PC, this definitely would not be the go-to for me. All right, let's dive out of the core rule books finally after the major chunk of our subdomains have been presented and start talking about the Arcana subdomain from Sword Coast. And this one struck me as kind of the first one where our opinions about this about this subclass were wildly different. I think that this was the lowest ranked subclass for me. Liwanika, it might have been the highest ranked for you. In fact, it was indeed the highest ranked for you by almost an entire point. Mine was was the lowest of, uh, of all of them. So I'm going to give the floor to you, sir. Tell me what I'm missing. For me, Arcana was all about the mechanics fitting what I wanted it to do. Um, I ranked it number two for mechanics. I ranked it number three for, uh, for flavor. And it's because of how that synergized. I thought, simply put, it just hit all the bells and whistles that I really wanted. Um, solid spells for its domain spells. Uh, the proficiency is arcana. It really does fall in the duh column. Uh, I mean, you gotta give that to them. So, uh, kudos for doing the thing that you absolutely had to do. Um, but arcane initiate two wizard cantrips at level one, uh, are awesome. Plus the arcana skill. Yeah. That's what we're talking about earlier. Where light cantrip. Meh. That's awesome. Yeah. But they got the skill to go with it, with it in this case. So wizard cantrips are, are just really, really good here. Uh, and it works really well. There's a lot that adds this flavor. Arcane abjuration. Look, turning celestials, fey or fiends is hot it is very hot it is hot it is i i will i will grant you that one that for sure is that's a powerful ability and the fact that at level five it you've moved it into the banishment realm is another matter think about it this way at level five you're coming pretty close by the time you're level six or seven you're banishing displacer beasts i i, I mean it is it is solid. Look, when we were talking about Faye, you want a party? I want one of these clerics 
if I'm going into the Fey realm. There's so many different ways to spin this flavor. I really like it. Spellbreaker. Wow. This is a great support character. I'm going to end an effect that's on it's like you. like a free dispel magic just for healing. Yeah. I healed you, and whatever effect they put on you is gone. So if they hit you with something that puts on the poison condition, no, they didn't. They hit you with something, and now you're charmed? No, they didn't. This is the blue deck of the cleric world. This is a Mother May I kind of character. They have that ability, and if you pick the right spells to go along with this... And Arcane Mastery is the capstone. Is I, I like that one, too. That's, that's pretty hot. Wisdom Modifier, same as we've talked about before. It is neither detractor as compared to others because it doesn't scale as well as it should in that it starts a little bit lower than necessary. I think tying something to the Wisdom Modifier, which even if you're doing all the things you should do, let's say you cap out at five, it never gets better. Uh, if you're going to do something that does not scale, do it earlier so at least it's more beneficial. Like... Put this at level, uh, as much as I love the second level, I would actually put this at level two and kick everything down a level, and that makes more sense to me. It, it's bizarre and strange. I mean, you have to do a little weird thing with the banishment thing, but it actually, I think, makes that banishment because there's a lot of fae and a lot of fiends and a lot of celestials in this game. I think that's a highly powerful thing at second level. You will balance that better if that comes in on the sixth level and you kick the management up a bit. May have to adjust what CR levels it works on accordingly, but man. The problem with that is that it's totally against the model of the cleric. Like the model of the cleric is to go ahead and put that ability at eighth level. And you're right, it just doesn't it doesn't scale. Right. And so that's why, I mean, we've said that before, like tie things to proficiency bonus instead of, you know, instead of, you know, may, maybe make it, if they wanted to go ahead and say, take wisdom and add it to a cantrip, then, you know, your wisdom, again, by eighth level, your wisdom might be a 20. So it might be plus five. Right. But, you know, instead of wisdom, say wisdom plus proficiency. Yeah. yeah that would add the scale and help it improve because yep. otherwise either the potent casting or the enhanced strike, either one, that eighth level ability should be moved down. It shouldn't be level eight. Yeah, so I think the 8th level ability just add plus proficiency bonus. And now all of our gripes about it, you don't have to do anything funky like we were originally talking about. Just do that, and we're, and we're hitting this on all cylinders. And, and then, of course, top you know if you're topping this off with oh, with four spells, 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth level wizard spells as domain spells, F that. You just got Wish. You're a cleric with Wish. And I believe Meteor Storm is still like an 8th or something like that. Which is stupid. Well, keep in mind that 17th level clerics have one spell slot each of those four spells. So. But they're prepared. Still. Which means they can rack them off when they need them to. Which means you don't have to worry about preparing them. So what they've done is just doubled what they know. Yeah. You don't just have access to it. It's always available. So if you're not using it, like, how many times have you said, man... I don't know what to do in this situation. Be nice if I had wish. Oh, that's right. I do. Yeah. That, that took your bag of tricks and turned it into a bag of holding of tricks. Because wish spell can replace any ninth level spell. So think about what you did. With that ability, you just expanded yourself to every ninth level spell in the game. And because you are a divine spellcaster, not an arcane spellcaster... There's no material component. Yep. Done. That's 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 a game set match. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, I was wrong. He sits corrected. <laughs>
<laughs> I'm wrong here. Like, Liwanika, much like I gave you the inspiration earlier, you have convinced me that my bottom of the barrel ranking of the Arcana domain is wrong. So it paints a perfect picture of a priest of magic. Yeah. I mean, it really does. It, it does. And I got to tell you, I did not walk in here thinking this was going to be. I've heard a lot of shade thrown at Arcana domain, a lot of shade in the community. And I don't know why that is other than everything from Skag must be bad because guess what? It was in Skag. And this was not. <laughs> I mean, got a bad abbreviation. Good yeah. But let's be honest. This also was not brought forward. And in Adventure League, you're not playing this because if most of the things in that book are bad, you're not picking this because if you're playing PHP plus one, you're done. By the way, that rule is no longer in place moving forward. So maybe we might see a resurgence or a relook at this class. This is super good. This, look, I said at the beginning of the first episode in Cleric that this, the research for this episode opened my eyes and have made me really want to play a Cleric. I, where I have not really wanted to do so in 5e before. Um, and I have said a couple times, this is what I want to play. This is what I'm going to play. This is bloody brilliant. See, and I was thinking of, I was thinking an Eladrin Arcana uh, uh, cleric would be so Maybe perfect. a Dragonborn. A Dragonborn could be really oh, yeah. cool with it. Yeah. Too. Well, you know, anything could really do it, but uh, I actually thought an Elven Priest of Magic made a lot of sense. Specifically, because of how deep and how cool this was, I wanted it to be mysterious. And because it's so often unplayed, I thought an Eladrim was just ethereal enough, odd enough, and more deeply fey enough that this would be awesome. So I'm, I'm going to leave a question hanging here that I don't want us to answer. Can an Arcana Domain cleric become a lich? We might have to put some thought into that. Uh, no, we're good. We're we're gonna leave that hanging because might have to put some thought, ladies and gentlemen. There's a lot of creative juices that you're not gonna see now, but I can promise you. <laughs> I promise you. We're not on video. You can't see our creative juices. Yeah, you're gonna realize how good this stew we're cooking is. <laughs> All right, let's move on. So we're gonna dive into Xanathar's now and talk about again another kind of stereotypical, if I may. Uh, battle cleric uh we're gonna talk about the forge cleric here and you know the forge cleric so heavily dwarven inspired right like that's that's it more than just kind of the war domain the, the forge cleric is like the dwarven cleric of moradin who you know who with the hammer and he the anvil the and the yeah exactly he is such the trope um i loved the the fire elements of this character. I thought that the fire twist was a really, really neat one. Um, uh, you know, and I, I thought that it, it stacked up better, uh, mechanically than some of the other clerics, particularly like the light cleric. I thought it was a little bit better than that, particularly at level 17. Um, you know, when, when he gains immunity to fire and resistance to, to pretty much all other damage types, like, you know, to, to normal damage. Um, uh, yeah, I just thought, you know, just a neat, sort of tropey, fun cleric type. While I thought this fits all the tropes uh, in all the right ways, what I found was very interesting was the fact that uh, this particular uh, domain also uh, can be used to fill a few different roles. Uh, I looked at this as saying, this was the Artificer before Artificer was cool. Before Artificer came out, 
this is what the fact that this was made is why somebody went back and said, I want to take this to the next level and made the art reserve, which is not to take away from this, except for to say, if there's an artificer in your party and you have somebody playing this, you've got to really work some angles to figure out your role in the party mechanically and your role in the party in role play situations because you're going to be doing pulling a lot of double duty with the artificer if you're not careful. It can be done without that, but you could accidentally step on, t- on each other's toes. So just be aware of that. But the player that plays a Forge Cleric in one of my ongoing games, he plays a tank. He has the armor, the abilities, all the skill, all, everything he's done. He's, he's juiced. He's the hardest character I have to hit, hands down. His AC is stupid. Stupid. When we've talked in previous episodes about do this or do that, this helps you contend with AC issues or makes dynamic issues in your campaign. Here's why. This subclass is why I learned those skills. This is why I had to, because it's hard to hit an AC 25 on a regular basis. Unless you're just saying, I hit them. If you're legitimately rolling dice and legitimately adding bonuses, hitting a 25 or a 26 if he puts up his shield spell or his mage armor or, or all these other things he can do, He's got a shield spell is what it is, or shield of faith. I'm sorry, that's the spell. If you're putting all those things together, it is hard to hit a forge clear. <laughs> really hard. <laughs> and then, I mean, yeah, and what this did is it took that trope. It took the trope of, oh, and by the way, let me start out with just a, my first notes. Artisan priest. So for the the uh, artificer and the priest thing, we're right on the same page. Um, I have them as a find, a finder or maker, finder and or maker of lost relics, and hill dwarf all day, twice on Sundays. Yep. They also get paladin smites. They've got searing smite right there at first level. I mean, that's a powerful, solid ass ability. Well, it's not a paladin smite. Let me rephrase that. They've also got searing smite, which is a bonus action right before you attack. I mean, so they're they're a solid melee class too. What this did, it added. That fire element, like you mentioned, Lee, it kind of like breathed that fire into it and reforged this domain to something that's a little bit more fresh. I went into it expecting it to just be tropey and just picture Moradin's hammer, but they made it more interesting with the little bits that they wove into it. Yeah, this was tempered by fire, but given elements and etchings of so many cool things, creation and all these other things. One thing that I didn't love about it was the, and I, I think maybe it's just like it felt like it didn't really do that much, but the, the the ritual ability at second level where basically they can take an hour and create a non-magical item valued up to 100 gold coins, that kind of thing. Like We talked about how, how like some of these subclasses can just get so specific you know, I almost, I almost wonder, like, I don't know, like, like now that I'm thinking about it, I can think of a million different uses a for it. A million times you could need some kind of specialty equipment that you don't have that that could be handy for, but you're not wrong. It's kind of weird. An hour long ritual, an hour long, it just seemed weird. Yeah, that's that's really what it came down to. Is it see, it yeah. was weird. An hour long so ritual. You're not wrong about it being somewhat specific, but where we just did our episode on the exploration pillar, and we talked about if you are in a campaign where you make resources an issue. Think about the fact that you're in the, you're, as long as he's got the core elements of it, you give him an hour and he builds what you need if you're in the, on the mountain. Yeah, that's fair. The, the Forge Cleric in the game I'm running, he actually is a merchant as well. And in the earlier levels, 
like when the party traveled, they partied with his wagon of raw materials so that he was never caught out. Like literally, he's like, oh, I'll just make this for that. Or he would go places like try to put him in a situation where, like you don't have enough money for that. He's like, are we going to be here for three days? In three days, I can put this many hours. I can do this and I will buy this or buy that to get us out of this. Like this became and again, going into what roles are they going to fill? in the game outside of the the actual martial element of the game, this became the resource guy for the party. Like when they roll into town, he sets up shop. They need a reason to be in a place where they ought not be. He's their cover because he's the merchant. He's like, are you really the merchant? Yes. Here are my wares. My symbol, which he designed very early on is on all my gear. He's got this whole thing set up and it was so well done that, I get what you're saying, but there are ways it can be done. It's done exceptionally well in my game. As a storyteller, if you have a player who's playing one of these and is into it like that, just be prepared to answer lots of questions about the stuff he makes. Because I get a page. (laughs) I'm being facetious. But I would say after every session, I do get a list of, will I have enough time during this downtime to make X, Y, and Z? That happens. Storyteller world problems, right? Yeah. Let's go to the other subclass featured in Xanathar's, and Glenn, I'm going to give you a chance to shine because you ranked this domain so obscenely high, I need to hear what you saw in the grave domain. You ready to be sold? The floor is yours. Are you ready to be wowed? Your your timer is on. (laughs) Please. The the timer does not apply in this dojo. I'm sorry. (laughs) So here's the thing. And I'm going to start off with a little bit of what you mentioned earlier, because I read in one of the articles I was reading on D&D Beyond that was talking about cleric. It's uh, how to play a cleric or cleric 101. It's a really cool article, actually, for giving you different ideas. I think I wrote it down somewhere. But anyway, and it's talking about the evilness versus not wanting to have evil classes and that the death domain, the straight up necromancy, it's hard to say that's not going to land in the realm of evil. And but they compared grave as being so close, but it's so, so not right. So right at the beginning of the grave domain, when he's talking to you about it, yeah, the gods that they're listing, and this is where I think people are getting stuck, tends to be evil gods uh, like Weejas. And I mean, the Undying Court is you never know which way that's going to go. Hades isn't specifically evil, but at any rate. It's the next part that really tells you what a grave cleric is. Followers of these deities seek to put wandering spirits to rest, destroy the undead, not make them. They are diametrically opposed to the undead and ease the suffering of the dying. They're next life midwives. They're hospice nurses. They're the house of black and white from Game of Thrones. And they're undead hunters. I mean, they're they're standing against the horror and the atrocity that is the undead while honoring a natural process. We all have to face death. Everybody does. They, if you were deserving, will help make your life help you pass more easily. They'll help ease your suffering. But if you deserve to be purged from this world and with undying righteousness as a necromancer would for making the undead, then they'll send you into the next life. Right? So then you look into their abilities and they just become so much more, so much more cool. Let me give you a mental picture. Have you seen the movie Priest with the post-vampire apocalypse, people living in a, in a walled city, 
the priests that go out and fight the undead, that's what these guys are. And oh my God, are they badass. If you'd seen that movie, you'd probably be with me. So for their for their domain spells, they've got necrotic damage, which makes sense. And it does dip into the necrotic, the evilness. But it's not because they're specifically worshiping death. They just happen to have their fingers and the pie on both sides of death's door. They're sentinels at the door. Right. So they can access that power of death to aid them in their calling. That comes from powers in their domain spells. Give them also their raises. So they're all always ready to go. Raise dead, revivify. Those are domain spells. So they're ready. Like if the life cleric is the healer, the grave cleric is the reser. The grave cleric is the one who has the best shot of keeping people from actually dying. The life cleric will keep them alive. So then one of the next abilities that gets at first level circle of morality. If the target's at zero, they get max heal dice at first level. So if one of your party members drop, that's when your heals are going to be the strongest to get them back on their feet and back in the game. I think that's a super solid bonus to the healing ability. That is a super solid ability. I will grant you that, yeah. Also, spare the dying becomes a bonus action with a range of 30 feet. That's insanely advantageous for one of the most used keep your friends from actually dying spells in the game because it's a cantrip from now it's 30 feet as a bonus action if somebody goes down you can make sure they're not suffering death saves or if they've missed the death save i think spare the dying at range just by itself let alone bonus action is hot eyes of the grave i could see as it might seem a little bit lackluster but it's dipping into the paladin abilities and it starts at level one giving them basically the same ability to sense and locate undead, undead hunters. So I'm really sticking strong to that piece of it. Their channel divinity ability for any creature within 30 feet curse until the end of the next turn, and they're vulnerable to the damage of the next attack, right? So whatever damage type's coming in, especially if you know where you are in your initiative order, you can give vulnerability to that damage to your fighter, right? So you're speeding your opponent's process towards the grave. It's a huge debuff. A sentinel at death's door at six as your reaction to any critical hit to me or an ally within 30 feet. I can say mm, it's not a critical hit anymore. And whatever effects that would have come from that critical hit, they don't apply. You're not killing my friend today. No, thank you. Potent spell casting. We've talked about how that's kind of meh. And then you got keeper of souls. The end, their capstone ability, I think, could be a little bit better, but it's still pretty groovy. Any of me dies within 60 feet and you see it, you can capture a piece of their soul to heal yourself or an ally for the creature's hit dice, the number of hit dice that they have. It's not a large amount, and you can only do it once per turn, but it doesn't state, I do not believe, that it requires a bonus action either. It's just if they die. Yeah, the only thing, you can only use it once per turn. So I guess that's actually... So if you're dropping, if you're dropping enemies, basically, you're using that ability to... You're, when you're dropping minions, right? So we talk a lot about how to go ahead and build combat encounters, right? And so party, as they get stronger, you're throwing minions at them. Now, those one-hit dice minions are helping keep your party at full power. Right, because you can throw out small heals. I would rather that heal was a little bit bigger than just number of hit dice, but by the time you're 17th level, whatever it is is likely to have a solid number of hit dice. But since y'all didn't have the movie for Priest to help you out, let me give you another image for why I think the grave is so impressive, because I clearly haven't sold you. <laughs> All right. You've improved my thought on it, but you haven't sold me. Like, I can honestly go through and improve everything by one, and it would still be one of the lowest I write. <laughs> okay. Let me introduce you to the NPC that I designed around this concept that I'm apparently not describing very well. His name is Augustus Cater. And Augustus Cater is a protector Asimar, priest of the grave, and his diva, or guiding spirits, 
kind of tell him where he needs to go through the world. So he shows up, right? Killed my son. Augustus shows up and was able to res him because as a driving force within the campaign, his diva instructed him, hey, you know, you need to be here to take care of this. Doing a bad job again. Let me try again. Augustus is walking through the field of fallen dead with his hands outstretched and his eyes closed and his dusky gray priestly robes, his hands outstretched towards the fallen, feeling for that twist of fate that says this one still had great works left. And that's the one he reses. An agent of the gods, literally moving from place to place, the opposite of the trickster, nudging the line of life and death based on whether or not your hero, who you set up as a part of a divine prophecy. So clearly... The prophecy's wrong if he's dead and they can't res him. So I strongly like that from a NPC element. I really like that. Like, really like that. That won't be the last you've heard of that idea. Um, that idea you sold me. I actually see some things. Yeah, that's. I think you did fine, Glenn. Yeah. But I certainly don't think it's a better subclass taking good and evil out of it than the death domain. But I certainly see your point that they are distinctly different. I think anything I've read previously that equated the two is flat wrong. 100% wrong. Flat wrong, like no question. So I think you did a fantastic job of selling me on the differences, the inaccuracies in the reporting that have come before this podcast, and a way to make this a better. So I would love to say I could go in and increase the wild card on this without hesitation or equivocation. I would absolutely do that. It's okay. I'll acknowledge that even in my own rereading that part of my gusto is centered 100% around Augustus and how he's influencing my world, and I can't give you great information there because I'll be spoiling stuff for my players, and what uh, what a uh, useful plot point he could be. But as a player, you're right. I, I, I let my storyteller hat run away with me on this one, but it's still it's awesome, and it's not evil. It's not anything like death. It's awesome. And I will say, for want to play, I put it in five out of one, one out of ten because there was something about it that I was seeing, but I couldn't put my finger on. Oh, so kudos to you for giving me the ability to put my finger on it. I think there's something there that that's really good. I have to specifically give kudos to Trish because she's the one that turned me on to the grave cleric and got my wheels turning um, because when she was looking into it. But it's it's got a lot of potential and it could be really really fun from the perspective of the holy warrior fighting against the armies of the undead it would be an excellent ravenloft domain you even you even may have found the archetype that fits the true neutral character very well they're not good they're not bad they're not lawful they're not chaotic they are dealing with the moment in the moment regardless of its trappings right well, Augustus does serve a good god, but you could create it as a pure, a pure, purely neutral god, neutral yeah. god who ra- would raise a creature that could have great deeds left to do, whether they be unspeakably evil or yeah. unbelievably good. Okay, Glenn, fantastic job on that. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Let's carry on here to the Ravnica book and the Order domain. I think that with the Order domain. We've seen this subdomain already in a couple of different formats, right? It it gets its heavy armor protection. It gets to impose some things. I think its best ability is probably at level six when it gets to take a standard action and move it into the bonus action phase. That, again, from, from an action economy point of view, is a really, really nice shift. But I don't think that there there is nothing in the sauce that really speaks out to me and says, yes, this is an amazing subclass. 
So, for me, I'm well known for loving playing heroes of Law and Order, right? My favorite characters over the years have all been uh, devotees of Tyr, a la the Forgotten Realms, with a significant homebrew bent that one of my early DMs gave to the, that deity in his world. And I have tried to take that into any world I play in that has that deity. Like, I will say, how does tier work in your world? Get that kind of take and say, could there be an order or a sect that views it slightly different? Like, they recognize and honor those ways, but this is their particular take. And I'm generally told yes. So much to the point where I'm very consistent in how I play that deity in almost every, with almost every character I do. And a, a domain that is specific to that is awesome for me. Like, I really like that. Like, I find it exceptionally strong. I wish I had known about it years earlier because there's some things I would have probably done different in my own homebrew world. But unfortunately, those characters have already been met, so I wouldn't really change them at this at this point. Though I guess with Tasha's, you could, in fact, do that. But I really like that element. And nothing for nothing, this has psychic damage. Like, we're tacking on a damage type that is not well-resisted unless you're fighting a lithid. But it is also something that's different than everybody else. For the Twilight Domain. Okay, fair. <laughs> the two from this book that has more psychic stuff than any other book have it. So before now, nobody has had this. I think that speaks highly to flavor. Now, all that to say, all the things I love about it, I didn't love significantly more than many others but I did like them significantly more than those below it. So this came in really middle of the road for me, not because it's inherently bad. I really like what it does. Uh, I would play one. Uh, I would play one. And I don't think it'd have to be very specific as to the type of world, as long as they're allowing this book to be used. And I would be perfectly fine, and I'd have a great time in multiple pillars of, of the game. We're all still talking about the Order Priest, right? Yes. Yes. I honestly expected both of you to be happier with this one than you are. <laughs> I'm going to be honest because yeah. it does. Yeah. It is its abilities don't nest quite as well as some of the other ones. So it makes its mechanics decent, but a little bit lackluster. It's set up to so play into how much you both like the banneret and the, the mounted knights and, you know, like the knightly orders. This is a law priest that would be with war, a war sect of generals or commanders or a knight's order. Between the heavy armor and then intimidation or persuasion for command, voice of authority, that's 100% a command ability. And now your healer, when he heals you, can now have your fighter as a reaction to making another weapon attack, which is kind of like some of the other abilities that you've been using, Lee, where you were able to give with your Warforged in, in the streams of Spiro, where you're able to give out abilities to other people basically through your tactics, etc. This fits 100% into that style of uh, of party or order, so I really thought both of you would be all about it. So, to be honest, I am all about it. The issue was, when you mentioned the fact that the synergy wasn't there and the abilities didn't nest well with each other, that dropped it and it didn't quite get there. But I could definitely see an order of these guys being the police for a, a theocracy. So I think a better way to look at that is a lot of times we think of an order of knights and we think of them as all being one thing, but they wouldn't be. If you created a true order of knights, like if you created an actual titled, you know, surcoded order of knights, they're not just going to have fighters and they're not just going to have one type of fighter. They're going to have different specialties for command, for clerics, for 
you know, so mixing those classes in to create that, I think this fits incredibly well into that style of group. So it could be a lot of fun to play, but yeah, it's, it's not a hundred percent there mechanically. So it, it lands a little lackluster. Yep. And I think that that's all that we're saying too, is that it's just, you know, you're given the choice between an order cleric, a war cleric, a forge cleric, and a light cleric who could all be kind of the face of the party or the leader of the party. I don't know that order is the one that I'm going to go, I'm going to go to. So I might, I might, but, and I really like what Glenn said about doing a, a, an order of knights. Like I could see the, the, the priests of an order of knights being this, as long as they had paladins of a specific type, uh, the banneret would be the uh, grunt fighters for, for this. Uh, a cavalier, perhaps being the lieutenant, or or a battlemaster being uh, a lieutenant or field commander. Um, d- you know, I could definitely see those elements. Bring there. in a paladin uh, from I'm a couple a- of different oaths, and it'll it would work well in the same yeah. groups. Yeah, and 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 maybe a rogue scout or two, just cause, just cause. Okay, let's move on to our final book in the discussion of the domains. We finally made it to Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Two subclasses featured in this one. We're going to start with the Peace Domain, which I kind of dug. I thought that the mechanics on this one were pretty good. You know, you talked about that that priest that, that basically is the buffing cleric, the one that really just kind of serves as support staff for everybody else in there. But really, more than anything else, what I loved about this and why I wanted, why I ranked it, gave it so many wildcard points, what it reminded me of was in Rogue One, the Jedi who, you know, I am, I am one with the Force, the Force is with me. The ability of a peace cleric to move through enemies and not attract attacks of opportunity is really, really powerful. And I really wish that he could have granted that to other people. <laughs> like, I wish, like, I think, like, that's the thing that, like, we're, no, we are, we are moving through this group of stormtroopers and they're not going to suspect a thing because we're just, because of just who we are, we're just moving with purpose and no one is going to suspect, you know, these, these are not the droids you're looking for. We're just going to move right on, right on past. I like, a lot of the RP of this particular class, like really fell for like, I, there's something about it. I wanted to see, uh, I thought of a more monastic tradition. Yeah, absolutely. I thought this would synergize greatly depending on which monthly order you're going to do, put a monk with this. I was thinking of a Choyon fat bulletproof monk. This was one of the ones that I was thinking of and, and trying to find that. Like, I love that movie bulletproof monk a lot. So I, I'm always looking for D&D to give me what it takes to make that character sing. And I don't think I'm quite there yet. Like, th- this is not exactly it, but you could get all the right shadings of that with a good multi-class. Uh, uh, finding where to make that multi-class because, you know, some of the abilities are a little higher up to get some of the cool stuff. But I, I liked it. I think it did a lot of really cool things. You know, I want to play it-ish. Uh, but again, this falls into... Am I going to be in the right type of campaign where I get to shine doing this? And maybe that speaks to me more as a player than than any of the classes I look. I do evaluate that element by what would I really enjoy playing? And I don't know if I'd quite get there. As an NPC, yeah, all day. I got a couple different ways to do that. They would probably come out of a monastic tradition. I could see people like this it, populating my world. When they start looking at the mechanics 
and seeing how they drop, they go, they just felt less than other things. Good stuff, less than other things. For flavor, maybe I was a little tied too much to the mechanics on this. I think the flavor upon second read and our discussion, I'm feeling the flavor a lot more. But again, am I feeling it more than the other stuff? Ranking it, it just continues to drop. And I think it unfortunately falls lower down because of that. Now, maybe I might think differently if I've seen one in play. This is a relatively new book. I have never seen one of these at a table. I have seen all of the others at a table, not the arcane, but I've seen most of the others at a table at least once. I've written, if not for anything else, for uh, pre-gen characters almost every other time. So maybe I just need more experience. So for me, I mean, I thought this was like, exactly like we said earlier, the classic buff priest to a degree. But the way that I took it wasn't towards monastic orders. It was towards an order of diplomat and arbitrators um, that were sent out to, whether it was because they were working with a specific group or, you know, I mean, these are the priests that could serve beside kings, could help negotiate peace treaties. And as a player too, though, I mean, it captured me. This one, I ranked it 10 for wildcard max score because it totally surprised me. When I read Peace, I was like, meh. I mean, yeah, I could play a pacifist cleric and have a good time. That's what went through my head. Uh, but so, so, so underestimating it uh, in terms of the flavor and just the way that it works. Um, the domain spells focus on buff and support, as you'd expect. And the skill choice at the beginning, Implement Peace, you get to choose one skill of Insight, Performance, or Persuasion. Meh, it's a little lackluster. But the bond and what they can do with your party, especially as their proficiency number goes up, is super cool. So as an action, at first level, they can form a bond that lasts for 10 minutes with a number of people equal to their proficient between a number of people equal to their proficiency bonus. So like they don't have to be in it. They could set it up between two people on the front line, I believe. And then for the rest of that, as long as they stay within 30 for the rest of that 10 minutes, as long as they stay within 30 feet of each other, they get an additional D4 that they can apply to to any one roll per turn, attack or damage. And I don't really like it when they cross because attack and damage are two totally different numbers to be able to put the same modifier on them. But when you're talking about a D4, that's not so bad. And at first level, that's actually pretty damn powerful, right? And then Balm of Peace, which you mentioned, Josh, the, their channel divinity ability to basically be so calm, they're just not a threat. But when the protective bond gets bigger at sixth level, now they can, as long as they're within 30 feet of each other, now they can teleport to within five feet of someone taking damage and take the hit instead if they're bonded. So in terms of like setting up your, your front line to be able to defend itself or your weakest player to be able to make sure that the tank can step in and keep Tristana from going down for the fourth time in a fight <laughs> by just absorbing, sorry, Tristana, by just absorbing the entire blow. Uh, that That's hot. Potent spell casting again, meh. But then even when you get to their capstone, expansive bond isn't amazing. But it's pretty solid because now your bond abilities go out to 60 feet. And when you use that teleport, the protector who's taking the entire hit gets resistance. So is it super? Mm, no. But for an overall buff assist cleric, I could have a great time playing it from that diplomat arbitrator perspective um, with all of these pieces. And you know what? I'd make it a hobgoblin because they've already got the group bond thing going on with the gift of fey aid and stuff. That would... That could, that could be pretty cool. So I, I, I ranked it a high up there on I'd like to play. It's not top of the list, but it's top three. Yeah. So dovetailing from what you said, you take a hobgoblin or you take anything that's got a charisma stat modifier 
And because your skill choice is going to be in that charisma area, you make your second stat charisma and all of a sudden you're dropping big dice uh, or big numbers on those checks, which really fulfill that role. So I could certainly see through the flavor being better. I don't know if it's better than the one above the ones I ranked above it, but certainly better than I was thinking. Okay, let's move to our last one from Tasha's, and this was, I really enjoyed the flavor of this domain, but it, it kind of kept sliding down the list as other ones, as I, as I scored other ones. And this is the Twilight Domain, and when I first read the Twilight Domain, I didn't really get a good sense for what this domain was for. I'm not going to rail on the fact that it's got Dark Vision, other than to go ahead and say, like, why Dark Vision? But then I figured it out. This is the like overnight sentry character that is high, that is specialized on making sure that the party stays safe at the campsite while your wizards are regaining their spells and and everything like that, right? And so it's like it that's this character. And again, we talked about about how you know it's the tempest that gets basically fly at level seventeen. Twilight gets fly at level six, so they could have restructured tempest to go ahead and give give that ability earlier, uh, and and actively chose not to to its detriment. I'm not sure how you got to tempest from from Twilight. Y'all didn't see me shaking my fist at that, but I did. For me, looking at this, I was kind of like you. I don't think I really picked up on how what it was all about when I was reading Tasha's when we did our big four episode review of Tasha's, which was wonderful. I love that episode. Those episodes love those reviews. Thought we really did some deep dives. But what I realized uh, as we continue to do this podcast is there is still so much within that book that we have barely touched on. And interestingly enough, in order to pick out some of the good stuff, we had to actually do an episode reviewing an entire class, subclass by subclass, before we realized some of the coolness that was within this book in Tasha's. Because I wasn't thinking cleric. I was thinking clerics or clerics, whatever. And uh, they had some neat new stuff. And I was kind of looking at it. It seems neat, but I moved on and didn't give it that deep look that this research has provided. I flagged a hundred things in Tasha's the first time around and did not flag any of these cleric classes. So, you know, goes to go show you how, how easy how, it goes to show you how good that book was and how easy it was to overlook some of the cool stuff. Yeah. And I will say this, uh, going back to a point that Josh, uh, made a lot during those, uh, earlier Tasha's episodes was the flavor and the jokes that Tasha writes in are on point. And specifically with this one, Tasha writes, and I quote, I can't believe I'm writing this, but I think I could get behind a faith focused on mood lighting and evening wear. <laughs> hey, come on. Yeah. That's, 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 that is at the table comedy goal. Yeah. That's good. At the table comedy goal. But there's things about this that I could really like. Uh, I mean, I have a very interesting element to my homebrew game that has a lot of things going on mystically in a special order and all these things. And I think I am thinking very certainly that I'm going to add a Twilight Domain cleric as one of my NPCs for this because there are just things about it that are just cool because there's a lot of them and they're cool. I like a lot of this, but again... Better than average as far as wanting to play it, but its mechanics fell really short. I think there's things about it I really, really like and that I will make use of in an NPC fashion, but I think would fall flat at a table trying to make them work. A sentry is a useful position, but I would struggle as a player trying to play it. 
And again, that's that's kind of the specific thing. If they make it too specific, it makes it tough to make it fit. I mean, for this one, it really is all about looking what the role is. I mean, you could take the easy answer and just call it an Underdark Priest, but that's not what it is. I mean, if you're playing an Underdark campaign, not a bad choice. He'll shine there. But, you know, when you were talking about the guy standing watch at the edge of the firelight, that's exactly what it is. Or in another setting, he's the guy standing at the edge of the village with his eyes scanning the darkness to make sure everybody makes it in and inside the walls before the gates close. You know, from that perspective, his dark vision does make sense. And he gets it out to 300 feet. I mean, that's further than normal by quite a lot. Yeah, it's actually further than improved dark vision. Right. And he can, as an action, he can share that with his wisdom modifier and creatures. So all of the people helping him hunt that darkness for the farmer who didn't come back to it from his field or the the girl who didn't come back from the forest where she was collecting berries or what have you, he can share that with them, even if it's a human village. So from that perspective, I think I underscored it on flavor because they do nest really well from that perspective. But overall, it just kind of felt lackluster and afterthought-ish, you know, like the way that some of it goes. Aside from those thoughts, you know, the Twilight Sanctuary ability for his dim light and can already cast light. I'm going to disagree on that. I don't think it was lackluster. I actually think it went too, I actually think it went too far. I think it's a little overpowered. And if you look at the if you look at the second level ability Twilight Sanctuary, right? So as an action, you can set up that sphere of light, right? 30 foot radius. Sphere moves. You don't have you don't have to take an action to move it. It just moves with you. It lasts for one minute or 10 rounds. And that's kind of the, the key piece. 10 rounds unless I get incapacitated or die. Whenever a creature enters or ends its turn in the sphere, that creature gets D6 plus my cleric level hit points, temporary hit points, and you can end the charmed or frightened at second level. So remember earlier when we were talking about the ability to go ahead and say, oh, that's right. You got a spell effect on you. No, you don't. It's gone. Right. And how powerful that was. This guy gets it at second level and it comes with a temporary hit point buff. So think about a 30 foot radius, right? 30 foot radius, you can fit your entire party within a 30 foot radius. And all they need to do is stay within that radius for 10 rounds. They never leave, if they never leave that radius, they will get D6 plus, if I'm at second level, D6 plus two hit po- temporary hit points every round. Those temporary hit points don't go away until the end of the combat. You are correct, but temporary hit points also don't stack. But every time you take damage, they just replenish, which is hot. I misread this, and that does actually bring it up a little bit more. Okay, well, wait, so, okay, so temporary hit points don't stack, but... No, if I hit you and you take five damage, the next turn you get 1d6 temp hit points back when you end your turn. It's it's a permaheal of temps. It is still exceptionally powerful. However, at second level, you're talking two hit dice for each of your characters. You're adding a d6. While that is a hit die for some of the lower style, it is half a hit die for the others and it's an actual die roll so you're averaging three hit points that's fine but it's for 10 minutes for everybody that's hot right right so it is it could be two hit points in it's it is definitely keeping your party back on average for an extra two rounds but at second level that is not game break no but at 15th level at 15th level it's only 15 hit points and again you're going against yeah okay so up to 21 hit points okay when I read it, I thought it said you could only get it once. I misread it. I didn't catch that it was every time you end your turn inside the radius. That does make it much more powerful than I thought. I truly believe it is powerful. I don't know about game breaking, but it is powerful. I don't. It is powerful. I strongly believe it's powerful. Actually, had I read that fully, 
and got that element of it, I probably would have ranked its mechanics a little higher. But I will say this, it is not game-breaking because at 10th level, I've got a Barbarian that's dropping somewhere between 50 and 60 in a round. 20 is less than he rolls when he rolls back. Wait, how is a Barbarian dropping 50 hit points in a round? Uh, two attacks. Yeah. Uh, great weapon. Okay. So uh, charger. D12. Okay. Yeah. How are we comparing weapon. the number of attacks and damage somebody can do to a Twilight well, here, Priest domain? Here, right, here. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to figure out how they're doing 60 points of damage in a round. We're not doing apples to oranges. We're doing like orangutans. Right, but to... what I'm saying is, the point is that if the damage being done in a round is somewhere in the 50 to 60 range, and you're healing 20, you're still not healing nearly as much as the damage being done in that same round. But no action has to be taken. You don't have to do a damn thing but stand there. Like I said, powerful, not game break, because it's not going to be enough to keep you up in death now. I, I would let my swashbuckler run with a, tw- with a Twilight Sanctuary priest every day of the week. Yep. What? I can stand at the very edge of your 30 feet, run ahead, attack, disengage, and run back, and regain any hit points you may have had the opportunity to go ahead and hit me with? <laughs> Absolutely. And it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be undefeatable to be game-breaking. It just has to be much more powerful than anybody else has the ability to compete with. But I don't know if it's game-breaking still. There's a lot of abilities out there that are powerful. It, if you as a cleric are at 17th level, now, now not only do I run back and get hit points, but now I also get half cover for doing it. Okay. Rogues, rogues break lots of shit. I'll take that. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> no, Twilight Sanctuary is a high right. ability. Let's, uh... And, I mean, and they get flight at six? Yeah. All right. And dim light? Yeah, totally. you're, you're saying all right, like you're about to try to wrap something up. Yeah. Well, no, it, it, that's... I have I'm a just final gonna, thing, I, at least, I was, that but I got to keep talking, go ahead. Twilight. Yeah, yeah, no, go right. go ahead, go into so, your final thing then. Yeah, I definitely think I underscored it a little bit, which we've all discussed. Some pros and cons, some heated discussions, some arguments even, maybe. But in the end, despite the fact that I didn't think on original reading that the mechanics were that great or that the flavor they gave it was that great, but I'm liking it more now, a part of that's from the concept I came up with it, I could totally get behind, and I ranked it like uh, in the top three of want to plays, I could totally get behind playing that character who helps beat back, back the darkness, that sentinel against the darkness, especially with Ravenloft dropping tomorrow. Well, I can't say tomorrow because uh, this is going to be the second episode and you already said last week. So especially with Ravenloft that dropped last week, <laughs> I, would, I would say that I would have to play this as a reborn because sometimes to fight the darkness, you have to be reborn to into be it. I liked the thought so much that I we, we talked uh, episodes ago about Oompenshire and how that was a nice town and Gomley was going to be our drunk bartender. Here's my point, though. I actually think in order to have horror work well, you have to have that tension break. And I think Gomley and a name like Oompenshire is that tension break. Like, you come in, it's got a goofy name, how bad can this town really be, and have... Dude, my bad, I didn't mean to start a tangent. No, 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 it's not a tangent, this is where I was going. I like this character being the captain of the town guard. The ability for this person to stand a watchtower and grant it to its other people while they're on watch, this sounds like a great captain of the town guard. It's 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 unusual... Night watch captain. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, night watch captain. So... 
or even or maybe maybe not the captain of the entire guard but like the sergeant in charge mm-hmm. of the night yeah, and npc wise it's like got that. lots of potential that way but you know I think it's got player you know, potential, you know, too. I could have a blast up, with it. Up at night, sleeps during the day to regain, takes their long rest during the day, you know, that kind of thing, you know. Not, it wasn't great for me, but I think I'd have to be in the right campaign to make to, 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 to feel I could make it work. All right. So we have now talked through two episodes, uh, close to three hours of cleric talk. We hope that all of you who have been asking for more class rankings are are, are happy. A shout out to our fans who keep asking us when the next episode is going to come out. Here you go. Three hours of cleric talk. Let's go down the list through the domains and the their final ranking when we averaged all of our scores and everything like that. So at the top of the list was the Tempest cleric. After that was the Death cleric the War Cleric, the Forge Cleric, and the Peace Cleric. Thank you very much to Glenn for bumping up Peace uh, up into the top five there. Next one was the Grave Cleric. Thank you again, Glenn, for sp- <laughs> way spiking up the Grave Cleric scores there and, and a fabulous uh, breakdown of it. The Life Cleric, the Arcana Cleric, the Order Cleric, which all of us scored pretty similarly. Uh, and then rounding out our, our, our bottom five were the Knowledge Cleric, the Twilight Cleric, which we just talked about, uh, the light cleric, the trickery cleric, and the nature cleric. So that was how we ranked it. And, and you know, really, again, underscore a point that we made kind of in the introduction of episode one, this was tough because anytime I'm looking at any particular cleric domain, it's my favorite one. And then as soon as I move on to the next one, it's like, oh, wait, no, 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 that one's my favorite one. And so I, it was really, really tough uh, to go ahead and kind of nail down what I liked most, how I I wanted to play, what I didn't want to play, all those sorts of things. So this was a really a really really challenging one, and I I think that uh, I think that our analysis kind of kind of bore that to fruit. That uh you know any of these scores I think could have gone any particular direction, and so trying to find uh, having fourteen subclasses within such a small uh, range of points at the end of the day uh, is a uh, is I think a really telling sort of characteristic. I'd agree. I would definitely agree. And I think if you look at our individual top fives, there's a lot of, or even our individual top fours, you're going to find just enough variance between our opinions, a lot of consistency, but just enough variance where three separate people who often run three separate tables or uh, and play at many different tables came up with multiple answers to how can I have fun? I and we all came to one conclusion that cleric as a class, so Glenn knew it all along. Not all along, just for the last twenty years, was a <laughs> superior class. It's very cool, and in the community, it's actually much better than I thought it was. Yeah, and in the no, you taught me that, and that was like nineteen <laughs> or so. Um, I started playing. You know, basically, day two of him ever playing a tabletop game. My bad. <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Okay, so ten years in, um, I want to say that the community has long since said cleric is strong. Uh, the fact that they're at every table speaks to that. The fact that they are very consistently probably a select group of subclasses that are often played speaks to the fact that not enough people have done a deep dive. So I encourage people, get out to your local stores, get these books if you don't already have them, read up on these classes, and the next time you're in a game and there's a role to be played, find a different way to play it. Pick something that you like. Always pick something that you have fun with but find a different spin you can put on it. A little extra taste, a little extra flavor, a little different way to do it. Use 
episodes like this and podcasts like ourselves and some of our friends that we that we join and collaborate with as ways to, and ways means and reasons to change up the norm so the next cleric you play doesn't have to just be a life cleric maybe they're going to be something a little different so yeah my greatest takeaway from cleric or that i'd want y'all to leave with is when you hear cleric don't think priest don't think healer don't think stereotype a cleric can be anything you can pick any role in the party and fill it with a cleric almost or pretty darn close so don't be afraid to play one if your party's short one don't be like oh the cleric instead look into the options and find the one that makes you go damn that's a nice cleric and have a great time all right, gentlemen, thank you very much. I, this was, I think this might actually be my most fun uh, subranking uh, edition that we've done so far, just because of how much I learned about Cleric on the way by. So fabulous suggestion. Thank you, everybody, for the audience for voting for Cleric. The The next poll will be out shortly, so keep an eye out for that. There was some uh, there was some contention last time around. I really thought that, that uh, Warlock might have pulled out. You know, we'll... Uh, not Warlock. We've already done Warlock. Which no, one? Warlock was the one. Uh, we did Sorcerer. For- Warlock was the one. Okay, yeah, yep. That's right. That's right. We did sorcerer. That's right. Yeah, I, I really thought that warlock was going to pull it out, but uh, cleric went out in the end. So be watching for the poll. We will be looking for your feedback. And uh, thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed. And by the way, share with everybody else because the more people voting, the more uh, opinions we get to bring in. Tell us your thoughts. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you'd like to see. All right. Night, everybody. Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. You can join us at www.ttjourneys.com, where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. And make sure you join our growing online community. You can follow us on Twitter at TT Journeys and join us on Facebook just by searching Tabletop Journeys there. You can also reach us by email at podcast at ttjourneys.com. And if you want to catch early access to our episodes and some of the other benefits we have coming down the pipeline, you can also support our production at patreon.com slash ttjourneys. If you're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, Audible, or any other podcast platform, we would really appreciate if you would like and subscribe to the podcast. Full episodes come out every week on Saturdays and every Wednesdays. We'll feature our SideQuest series where we talk about pretty much anything tabletop-oriented. Thank you all so much for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And in the words of another traveler on our path, we bid you shade and sweet water.